Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw yeah. 30 years ago, I stood in front of a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. That moment outside Heroes World set me on a path, a lifelong fan journey leading directly from that tattered red cape to this podcast. Now, together, we mine Superman's vast 85-year mythology by examining, discovering, and reconsidering the stories that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is a Mark Wade double feature. In the second half of the episode, I'll be joined by Joe Marcello from the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast to talk about Mark Wade's run on JLA. But first, joining me to discuss issues 1 through 12 of World's Finest by Mark Wade and Dan Mora as returning guest, Sweet, sweet Bernie Gersmeyer. Welcome back. Hey, yo. How we doing, buddy? Good. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. I love this. I'm, love, I'm excited to talk about this run. Yes. So a while back, I posted on Twitter. I was like, we have a couple of big events coming up, and I've got some standalones in the middle, and I've got one open slot to kind of play with to see what we might want to cover there. And I had been meaning to read World's Finest. This was... One of those instances where I read the first issue, I bought and read the first issue when it came out, intended to keep up with it, but as I've established on the show, unless I'm doing an episode about it, that rarely happens. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well, if I do an episode, then that'll, that'll motivate me to get through all the issues. And I put the call out on Twitter and I was like, would people be interested in this? And it just, it got a great response. It was like 40 likes very quickly, which for me on Twitter was, was a lot. And I was like, okay, people really seem like they're into this. So yeah. That was the the final little push that I needed to say, all right, like, let's sit down, let's read the first year of this series, which, as far as I can tell, has been very well received. What's been your sense, especially given your affiliation with Oh Yeah Comics Skokie? Is this something people are excited about and enjoying at the shop? People are picking it up. Yeah, it's there's there's rarely, if ever, extra copies left. Um, I think between... Mark Wade and then Dan Moore's work on it. And then, and then honestly, Tamara Bonvillain, the coloring on these, on these books are half of what makes it so good. Um, but it's, it's been exciting. I, of course I've always picked up if it's a Batman Superman book, or if it's called Superman, Batman, however you want to order it, I, I'm going to read it and see how it is. It, it was refreshing. It was a, the tone of it when it came out. I think was really refreshing and it's only gotten better over the course. And I think we're on number 15 now, I think or maybe 14. Yeah. So within that first year, two main story arcs, the first with the devil Neza and then the second mm -hmm. one, the strange visitor arc mm -hmm. featuring boy thunder Superman's previously unknown first sidekick. And there are also two standalone issues. And that seems to be the structure that Wade is following, where we get a five-part arc and then a one-off. And I know currently, as we're recording this, they're in the midst of a metamorpho story. And then I think yeah. we saw from the August 2023 solicitations that the issue, the one-off following that, 
details uh, Clark and Bruce's first meeting. So I'm sure that'll be a fun one. Yeah, that'd be cool. I, I really enjoyed the one-offs. Like, we'll talk about it. But as much as they're not part of the arc, I always enjoy them. And, and these specifically were very educational. It was kind of cool. Totally. And I, I want to echo what you said about Dan Mora. This art, and, and the coloring as well. But this art, man, amazing. And I, I was yeah. familiar with Mora's art from some of his Power Rangers work. And I'll just give a quick plug here for any fellow Power Rangers fans. As always, we have the Summoning the Zords podcast, which has yeah. really been heating up. And, and the audience has been building for that. And it's it's been a lot of fun. But anyway, he did a lot of Power Rangers work. So I was familiar with this stuff from that. But it's just absolutely gorgeous. I don't, I don't know how he is able to walk this line between art that feels so fresh and dynamic and and modern yet also perfectly matches the silver age aesthetic and vibe that yes. Wade is going for. It's this kind of like crazy perfect balance. I, I like to call it just like a neoclassic approach there. There is, it is honoring the past, but it's clearly a modern look and it's just really cool. That's what I, that's one of the things I love about this book. You know, I haven't, have you kept up with Sean G- Gordon Murphy's white Knight universe by any chance? You know, I, I read the first the first trade. I really really liked it, and I do like the art on that one also. That's got a very kind of it. It's a very film noir style story, and the art matches well. I and I have I think it's the Curse of the White Knight, I and I haven't so. read that one yet. I haven't read that one yet, but um, yeah. Why why'd you bring yeah. that up? No, I mean not that not that the art is identical, but in certain <clears throat> certain aspects of it, just kind of call to mind that that sort of style. So that was a little bit of what I had in my head, but. Uh, but yeah. no, I mean, this is very much its own thing, and, and I love it. I'll also say, and I've said this before, I don't want to be, sound like a broken record with it, but I own the first issue physically, and then I read the rest of them digitally, and it just it just pops so much more on that iPad screen. So really, again, I'll just put that out there. I mean, I've I've right, I've attributed buddy. that to the paper quality when we had Ken on the show and we were talking about it. He talked about how since the coloring is done digitally, that's always going to be the best representation of it. Yes. So it stand. I mean, it, well, it's kind of is proving true. And, and I heard you guys arguing in the episode. We're well, not not arguing, but talking through about the idea of that purist idea where you want to hold it in your hand. Sometimes you want the book. I have a I struggle reading regular novels on an iPad or a Kindle because I I like holding the book. I like feeling the pages. I like hitting myself in the head with it when I fall asleep. Um, and then. Also, just knowing how much of the book is left, sometimes just having like, ooh, I like have this much left. I don't know why that's weird for me. But reading the comics, especially for me, the magazine paper, when you have the good comic uh, paper, uh, that's just awesome. As far as the falling asleep thing, I've, I've been, uh, I know we're both a little under the weather. And I was reading <laughs> last night on my iPad, lying down, and, and I was starting to doze off at one point, And I was like, snap out of it because if this ipad yeah. smacks in the face it's not gonna oh, yeah. be great <laughs> no i've gotten take out I've, I've been taken out by my own ipad a few times too but listen i'm i've always been a, a trustful follower of anthony desiato opinions so i will give a few digital comics a try and see how it goes yeah I would, i'd be very curious to get your take and, and again whenever i say this it's like you know my heart is always with the comic shops i'm not trying to talk people out of buying these books but Again, really, just in terms of of just what they how they look. I mean, it is a it is a pretty you know vast difference. But anyway, I'd be curious to to get your take. So, just yeah. a, a real quick anecdote before we share our opinions on these arcs and everything. Okay. So, 
when this series was first announced, I mean, probably two years ago at this point or, or thereabout, um, I, I assumed whenever I eventually covered this on the show that Rich Roney would be my guest. And that's no knock on you, Bernie. It's only because Rich, who's been on the show a bunch of times and I know people are familiar with him, number one Mark Wade fan that I know, got into comics with World's Finest. So that title and the whole concept oh, yeah. is really near and dear to him and grew up in the Silver Age. So the idea of a Mark Wade written World's Finest series that adheres to the that Silver Age sensibility would yeah. seem to be just like an absolute slam dunk for Rich Roney. All right. Well, everybody, I'm going to get going now. Thank you for... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Anthony. Yeah, Rich is here. So sorry. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I bring this up because I was floored, and I, I don't think he would mind me me sharing this. It's I'm not yeah. saying anything out of out of school here. But you know, he was not as keen on this series when he Whoa. started reading it as as I thought he would be. Uh and and then you immediately were the the first person I thought of uh, once I knew that I was actually going to do this episode. But I'm just saying, like going back to the outset of this, I was kind of floored. But but that's kind of Rich Roney. You never know. I don't mean to take us on too much of a tangent, but I just always love telling this other story yeah. too, real quick. So I I won't I won't take offense. I know that you wanted to take Rich to the prom, <laughs> and I'm and I'm your second choice for the date. It's okay. No, this was not my intention. <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this. No, but like there was um there was this really funny uh, instance where at my old comic shop where I used to work, Rich would have this tradition. He would come in twice a year on Wednesday to help us break down the new shipment. It was like once mm -hmm. in the summer and once around Christmas time. Like he would, and it was always a fun thing. And one of the times that he did this, it was when Captain America Reborn number one came mm -hmm. out. And he, yeah. Captain America's favorite Marvel character. He loved Steve Rogers. This was the point in time Steve Rogers was quote unquote dead. But then we find out in Reborn, he's bouncing through time. And I remember he was at the shop and we were unpacking the boxes and he found the box with Reborn. And this was a big book. I mean, we ordered, I don't know, 150, 200 copies. I mean, it was, there was a lot in there. And, you know, we're all working through the, all these titles, trying to get through them as quickly as we can. And Rich is really babying this one title. I mean, he's just unpacking it very slowly and he's stacking them and he's checking them very meticulously for damages. And and we're like, look, this is what he came in here for today. It's fine. Like, just, you know, do your thing over there. And so he spends so much time, again, stacking, checking, counting, like really, really taking his time with this. And then, and, the, you know, the passage of time, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but not by much. He picks it up and he flips through it for, I don't know, a minute. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, oh, no, he goes, oh, this isn't very good. And he puts it down. <laughs> <laughs> after honoring it and going through all that it's like no thanks yeah so now the reason for this long walk here is that, <laughs> is that is not to make you feel bad for being my second choice yes, because you're you're, okay. you're not burning I, I wouldn't i would never never think of it in that way but I, you know i hadn't been following this series and i only i mean i knew kind of the chatter online people were into it but again rich rich's kind of muted response to it made me kind of wonder so Last night I read the first arc and then earlier today I read the second arc and I got to tell you, uh, the second arc won me over a lot because mm -hmm. when I was yeah. done with that first arc, I did not dislike it. However, right. I was really like, Oh God, like I don't want to come on the show and like, dump all over this thing, but yeah. I was not really feeling it until that second arc. So it was a little bit of a roller yeah. coaster for me with this series. I was a little nervous after the first arc. 
Now, I agree. Now, I will say that there is a little bit of the nostalgia. There is a little bit of the nuance and excitement that a, a Mark Wade Batman Superman book is back. Issue one is very good. Like it, it's it's a smash in the face. Let's go. We're clearly in the not too distant past, which I want to talk to you about that too. Um, but it felt really good. But it does dip. But then we hit that Robin Circus one and come into Strange New Visitor with David. As like, oh, okay, okay, we're good, and it gets better and better and better and better each month now. Yes. Well, no, that's the thing. And look, in fairness. Two things. Number one, that first arc deals with a supernatural demon and the Doom Patrol. So for me, that's your favorite. Yeah, for me, I mean, it's not the effing metal men, at least, but it's like we're. <laughs> 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 that actually, I don't know if you knew that, but that was that's actually DC's title for their reboot comic. It's the effing metal men. <laughs> that's that's going to be coming out. It's soliciting for October. Awesome. We'll we'll cover it on the show. It'll be great. No. <laughs> So this was kind of starting at a little bit of a deficit for me. I'm not going to lie. I, I, you know, that those aren't characters or concepts that really grab yeah. me. So there was, yeah, there was two a strikes, you know, there was a little bit of that, but the other thing is even, even after being a little bit lukewarm on the first, arc, there was a lot I liked in there, but it didn't totally grab me. But even being a little lukewarm, what I recognized was for what it's aiming to be, it's exactly yeah. what it should be. And it's doing exactly what yeah. it, what it needs to, you know? So yeah. You know, so it's not really a knock per se. It's more just it wasn't really what I was looking for per se. I, I think we gotta, like you're saying, we gotta approach this book like it's a summer movie, not an Oscar winner. It's it's good, good, clean, fun comic writing, and it and and again, you you slap a Dan Moore on this book, and you're like, now now we're talking. But it's popcorn fair. It's it's fun. It's got some drama in it. But again, we're not we're not looking at a major crossover event that's supposed to tear heartstrings. It's supposed to be something that's fun. It's on different characters, brings people in. Just try to remember the original World's Finest did that too. Like it brought in guests. It was a two of them, and then a new character, an old character, an old group. But I think it's hitting the right mark. We might not always like the content or the people, but it's doing the job. No, I, I agree. And again, I, I thankfully was able to recognize that even, even before it fully won me over. And again, it really did win me over. And I think there's a lot, I just feel like there's more meat on the bone in that second arc and more that really kind of spoke to me. But yeah. it's funny. One of the things I had this moment where I was like, you're just like a, like an old man now, because I'm reading that first arc and I can't help but compare it to Superman, Batman, that first arc oh. public enemies by Jeff Loeb and Ed McGinnis. Now, yeah. Just as Rich Roney right, had this amazing moment getting into comics with World's Finest, it was uh, the issue yeah. where Superman and Batman have to go to Candor, and, and like that holds such a special place for him. I was well into comics by the time that Loeb McGinnis series started, but that was my first, you know, I had read issues where Superman and Batman teamed up, and of course there was JLA, but there hadn't been a World's Finest, well, I guess there were those right. couple of miniseries that were floating around, but I hadn't, I hadn't read them, but, and certainly oh, nothing ongoing. Yeah. And so when that came out, that was a big deal for me. And I had, of course, been following Loeb and McGinnis on the Superman title. And so the idea that they were shifting over in the first arc was dealing with President Lex. I was all over that. And to that story's credit, and people's mileage on this may vary. So this is a personal thing. But I loved 
and upon rereading recently, still love the dueling uh, narration between Clark and Bruce. Oh yeah, where it off you see so much about how these two guys see each other, and it just illustrates their dynamic perfectly. And that's not part of of this story. Certainly not in that way. There are a lot of moments that show how well they work together and this and that. There's you know, in World's Finest, there's little to no tension between the two of them. They're, they really seem to have a great working relationship and a wonderful dynamic, and it's fun to see. But I guess in my mind, what my default is, is something more akin to Superman-Batman, where you do see a lot of respect and a great working relationship, but a little more tension and just a little bit more insight and nuance into how they view each other. And so I couldn't help but make that comparison. And and this fell a little short, but again, then I took that step back and I was like, well, no, this is doing doing something different yeah. and I can appreciate that. But I had that moment. You, it's hard when you compare stuff to something like Public Enemies. You got to understand, like, if you held a gun to my head and said, take your 10 favorite Superman books to your desert island that you're going to have to reread, that trade is coming with me. That's in that short stack. And that's that says a lot. So if we're if we're comparing stuff to that, I think it's going to fall short. But I do think Strange Visitor it really hits the mark, similar to Public Enemies in a lot of ways too. Yeah, and that's fair. No, again, I, I not to belabor the point, but I really uh, my opinion of the series overall is quite high, and in large part because yeah. of that second arc. I, I want to go back to what you said a moment ago. You wanted to talk about the the time period, the setting of this series, the not too distant past. Yeah. So when do you think this takes place? I don't know. I mean, obviously Dick Grayson is Robin. And it it does not appear that Lois and Clark are together. I mean, just mostly based on that first issue where Lois is like, where's Clark Kent? I mean, I don't, she wouldn't say that if she knew. So, so I mean, I think quite, quite early, quite early on in in their superhero careers. Like it, it kind of feels to me like it would be, and and I'm you might disagree. To me, it feels like a 1970s, early 80s. Like it's like almost right as the bridge of Silver Age going into Bronze Age. It's got that tone. That's where it sits. Like it, the characters, we don't see anything really super modern coming at us that would fault us except at the end of Strange Visitor, which we got to talk about too. Oh, with the whole kingdom, the kingdom come connection. Correct. Yeah, for sure. The other thing too, and I, I think this is in the second arc when they're, I, I could be mistaken, but when they're at the fortress, we do see the purple Kryptonian battle suit. Yes. So you never know. I mean, I think it's purposely meant to be vague and a little ambiguous as far as, yeah, maybe timeless. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, I mean, definitely early on in their careers and definitely, you know, definitely calls to mind a lot of those Silver Age. Again, you know, it's funny when I say, when I talk about the Silver Age, I mean, it, this, it reads, it's very fresh and dynamic. It's, I don't mean to make it sound like it's hokey or that it reads like it was written in the 60s. It doesn't. It, it definitely Agreed. feels modern, no. but. Agreed. I mean, I guess mostly in terms of the Superman-Batman working relationship. I mean, they're they're very much you know, on the same yeah. page and it doesn't play into that. And, and this is not, uh, you know, before anyone's like, oh, he probably wants it to be like Batman v Superman or they're fighting each other. It's not even that, but I feel like most modern stories do play into its respect, but there is some tension there over their differing methods and, and approaches and everything. And 
Um, this is a Batman and Superman like who really work well together. And and even things like Candor and the scientists in Candor who they consult with, right. Supergirl right. being able to break the time barrier and follow the Tachyon Trail, you know, to yeah. you know to ancient times. So there's like a lot of that stuff that feels again that has that Silver Age feel to it. Yeah, I'm with you. Like issue one, most of the notes I take now for our podcast are notes that to help me not, if I read it like a week ago, so I won't forget what the heck I read. But mostly it's quotes that stick out. And issue one, it's the interaction between Superman and Batman, where he just says, I have your back always. And again, it's that tone of their relationship. And it's not the, I don't really trust you yet, Clark, and, and like, come on, Bruce, lighten up. Like, it's, it's, they are friends, like almost, I will hug you kind of friendship at this point. So that's the Clark and Bruce relationship that I actually like. Okay. Um, I don't find it hokey. I think they're a team because they complement each other well. You have the world's greatest detective with all the resources at his fingertips and the most powerful being on the planet working together as equals. And that's what I think is really cool. No, I like, that's the thing. I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. And it's not like I need them at each other's throats, I guess. So I was thinking about this and, you know, down the line on the podcast, I have more, more kind of in mind and store to cover with respect to this relationship, because there, there is a lot to mine there. So this is not the only time we'll be talking about world's finest or these characters yeah. or how they work together. But I was thinking like, what is my, what is my default? What, what do I go to? And it's yeah. probably, I mean, that, that Jeff Loeb series, but also even before that, the, the DC animated universe is uh-huh. probably in my heart, like what I kind of go to first and there too, again, they work well together and there's a lot of respect, but there's a little bit of an edge and there is a little bit of tension. And I think for me personally, I like a little bit of that, a little bit, a little, a little sauce well, on top. But there has to be two because they both come from not just two different worlds, but literally two different cities that Superman and, and for ages and issues, we've talked about how Superman does not work well in Gotham and Batman does not work well in Metropolis and they need each other. To be under, to able to understand that, Bruce should be brooding, like the Kevin uh, Conroy. Kevin Conroy, thank you. I almost said Kevin Nealon, and that is not who was the voice of Batman. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a different. That would be a different take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different take. But um, there should be that edge where they are friends, but we we come from different worlds, like. Don't tell me how to do my job. I won't tell you how to do yours kind of thing. But they're always there for each other. That's kind of where I sit. There's always that I'm there for you, but it's not always apples and apples how we deal with stuff. Yes. Yeah. But is it, but I mean, what do you feel you got here? Do you, I mean, I think, I think we're not there yet. I think we're still, I think we're somewhere in the middle of that. I think it's still, there's a lot of friendliness, but Batman's also, He's got, especially at the end of this first arc, he's pretty raw. He's pretty emotional. He's pretty angry. Um, and he doesn't really like Superman sacrificing himself or even the appearance that he's going to sacrifice himself. Um, he feels like he should be doing those things. Like, no, they need you, you know. And and, and I, it is. I think there's still the, the edge is coming 
there's going to be more conflicts. There has to be. Yeah, well, we'll 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 keep an eye on that as the series continues to yeah. unfold. And at the same time, for people who are like, no, like I like, I, I just I like a Batman and Superman who are on the same page and who are you know vibing yeah. with each other and just have each other's backs. I, I totally get that, and it does lead to some great moments. The the one that you quoted when Superman has been injected with that red kryptonite cocktail by Metallo, and he's yeah. uh, on the operating table and and. Uh, we have negative man from the Doom Patrol trying to purify his blood, and you know it's it's getting a little bit dicey. And and you know Bruce is talking to him, and he's like, "You don't just do the impossible; you make it look easy." Yeah. Uh, and then when Superman comes through, and Batman's actually smiling, and one of them actually comments on the fact that it's you know so out of character for for Batman to do that. And then going uh, to your other point about the the climax of this of this first arc, where this demon Neza has to be. Uh, imprisoned within this tomb, but can only be sealed from within. And yeah. it appears that Superman ha himself has taken this insignia and gone inside and, and done the job himself only to, you know, be doomed to uh, right. uh, be unable to escape. And of course the, the, the twist there uh, is that he had grabbed the phantom zone projector with him. Yes. So after he sealed the tomb, uh, he sent himself to the phantom zone, destroyed the projector on his way out. So now the demon is trapped alone in the tomb because he knew that Batman would notice that the projector wasn't on the ground where it had been. And, and that the slit is still open. Yeah. Yep. And they'd be able to pull him through. And Batman says something like that was a hell of a gamble or something like that. And he's like, well, it was, a, it was, it relied on you on Batman noticing something. So it wasn't a gamble. It was a plan. Yeah. You know, which was great. I mean, it's and a that, great, it's a great, great moment. So much of that also did feel like a silver age moment. Like all of the, the Phantom Zone projector, that thought process, that like that twist, it did feel that way. It was cool. It was one of like the best Silver Age vibes that I got. Here's the thing with with Wade, and I, I think you see this in in a lot of moments, especially the ones that we just mentioned, where he knows these characters and their dynamics oh. so well, and has so much love for for them and the history. It comes through, so yes. it, it feels there's an authenticity to the proceedings. Uh, that come from that. And I, what I also love too is I love that Wade is building his own little corner of the DCU in the not too distant past. We have this. Yeah. I know there's the forthcoming uh, world's finest teen Titans miniseries. He's got his Shazam title. I don't know if that's meant to be present day or similarly in the past, but, yeah, I don't know. but, but in any event, like really kind of building out this little corner and given well, forget, we also, we also have, what he's done in the past. Of course. Yeah. You look at birthright, you look at kingdom come. I mean, he's got a little area of the Superman and that, that universe. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, but I, I guess, you know, the fact that he had been gone from DC for so long, yeah. you know, that he's back and it's not just oh, a little here and there. It's like, no, no, no. He's really building out this area, which I think is great. And the uh, other <laughs> thing too, is having, finally done a fair bit of Silver Age reading in recent years for the podcast. I mean, A, I ended up enjoying them a lot more than I thought I would. But B, I think one of the things that I've said and have certainly thought is like, oh, there are a lot of cool concepts that, yeah. you know, it, it would be it would be cool to see some of these ideas with a more with more modern storytelling sensibilities. And I feel like that, you know, that's right. what we're getting here. So uh, again, there's a lot of value to this approach. And I, I you know, I do I do I, appreciate I that. I think what bothers me sometimes when people talk about writing 
for comics or writing for comic-based movies or films or, or shows. Writing is not about fresh ideas, new stories. Oh, we've never seen them do that before. Good writing means you understand the tone of the character. You understand what would Superman say and what would he not say? How would Batman approach this and how would he not approach this? Because you could think up all these cool sci-fi superhero stories, but if you're lacking the tone, and we've seen shows do this, they fall flat. But when you find writers that truly the DNA of the character is in them, they know exactly what Superman would and would not say. And that's what Mark Wade knows. For for sure. So, uh, you know, we've been talking about some of the specifics and, uh, you know, I would imagine people listening to this have hopefully been following the series. If not, I definitely recommend it. But this first arc, the antagonist is this devil Neza. Yeah. Uh, and we get the, the backstory um, where uh, he had been killed and his father went you know, spent uh, years and bloodshed and his entire fortune to try to find a way to bring him back. And when he ultimately did, the son was aghast at the fact that the father had given up his power and his fortune in order to do this and promptly killed his father and right. set out on his own quest of, of, of power and bloodlust and was ultimately imprisoned in this tomb, eventually found a way to create a spell that, that allowed him to free himself. And he started employing slash possessing uh, various villains across the DC universe. In the first issue, we start with Poison Ivy and Metallo. Uh, we have, there's, you know, Dr. Alchemy, Felix Faust. Uh, Faust. Yep. Uh, later, he goes on to possessing the heroes, including Green Lantern uh, and Superman himself. Uh, and, so and Alfred. That, and Alfred. Uh, so it's a lot of, you know, Batman, Superman, you know, trying to uh, trying to get ahead of this and deal with these, these right. possessed individuals. And meanwhile, Supergirl and... I was going to say Nightwing, Supergirl and Robin have gone to yeah. the past to learn how this ancient group of heroes had been able to defeat uh, Neza. Um, so that's kind of the basic setup for this. I mean, as far as, and yeah, along the way we meet the Doom Patrol and we have appearances by Barry Allen Flash and again, uh, Green Lantern and so on. Uh, I mean, just as far as this villain and the overall setup for this, I mean, what, what how, how well did this work for you? It's, it wasn't, again, there's nothing to, for me to dislike. It didn't seem new. I feel like you could replace Neza with a different supernatural character. I feel like we've seen this in some way, shape, or form over the course of various trades over the last 30 years. Um, and what always brings it back is who comes to save the day and or who has been taken over that they have to also stop. Like... One of my favorite lines in the whole thing is when Green Lantern is taken over. And Green Lantern is not an easy adversary if you're if you're fighting against him. But the quote that I wrote is, I, I forget who says it, but it says, I miss the days we could just knock him out with a yellow brick. Yes. That made me so happy. It was, it's just a great callback. And it's like, oh, it's just I'm saying, why is he so hard to beat? I hate this. Like, And I don't think it's super original, but I think it's fun. I think there are a lot of great moments. I do think going back in time and talking to the original Guardians of Guardians of G, I think it was J.I. It was fun, and the, and trying to find out why Supergirl and Robin are so awkward around each other was also fun. Yeah, so then we'll get that one-off issue where we see the their date gone awry. You know, it's funny yeah. like that. 
that dynamic and then that that subsequent issue, I gravitated toward toward that a lot because again, it was just a little bit of this this tension. You know, we obviously have the tension with the adversaries they're against, but I right. like, you know, a little, little friction with, you know, with, with between our protagonists, I think goes a long way for me. So something like yeah. that, I was like, oh, this is great. And what happened between them? And I think it was ultimately a pretty satisfying payoff when you see the date that they had where, you know, Robin shows up in his costume and Supergirl had shown up in civilian clothes. And she's like, oh man, and she has to change. And, uh, you know, he talks about all oh, the bills, no problem. You know, money's no issue with me. And then he catches himself. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's all a it's, mess, yeah. but it was fun to see that play out. Well, and he's like, well, let, tell me something about you. And then she's going through like all the different types of kryptonite that affects her and how it affects her. And he's like, yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> like, and he's just clearly, they are just having the worst date ever. And then of course there's a truck full of bowling balls that they have to stop, which is just the weirdest, funniest thing to have to stop. But if you think about it, really dangerous also. Yeah. Uh, but you know that first arc. I think it's, I think it works nicely as a kind of a tour through the DCU. Yeah. And even Agreed. if, even if the Doom Patrol isn't my favorite stop along the way, I, I can still I can still get on board. So, uh, you know, so I think it 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 definitely works in in that sense. And as far as some of these other moments, one that really stood out was Felix Faust makes it appear that they've all been sent to hell, yeah. and Batman's really freaking out. This is the point where they're trying to rescue Billy Batson, whose whose mouth right. has been magically sewn shut, and they don't even know Billy at this point. They don't know what's going on, except that Felix has this kid, and so it appears they're in hell. And you know, Batman again is kind of like losing it, and Superman is just the epitome of of cool and calm and collected, and he's yeah. using his uh, his super hearing to listen for another heartbeat because he knows this isn't real, and he knows Felix would want to see this, right? And so yeah. he's able to you know, to get the drop on, on Felix and they return to, you know, their normal settings. And, you know, Batman has this moment where he's like, how did you, and he catches himself and he goes, oh, Superman doesn't believe in hell. So he didn't buy into this at all. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really catch that, I guess, on that, on that, on that quick read. But why, why that kind of strikes me as interesting. Is that, has Superman said that before? Well, so this is what I wanted to ask you. So in the second half of our double feature here, we talk about Wade's JLA run, including the Heaven's Ladder one shot that he did with Brian Hitch. And in the, and folks, I'm uh, working through a sore throat here. So if I'm a little off, please bear with me. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Powering through, <laughs> we'll make it. Uh, but in that Heaven's Ladder story, they, there is this discussion between leaguers kind of about what they believe. Like Aquaman talks about how, oh, we believe we've become part of the ocean and we're the salt and the water, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And someone asks Superman, like, what does Batman believe? And and he says, if I remember correctly, like, I, th I think he believes in, in an afterlife or something like that. And I remember, th and it's in the second half of this episode, so we'll, you know, people can hear it shortly. <laughs> but then, and, and in this issue here, I, I bumped up against this. I would be curious to get your take and to get other people's mm -hmm. takes because Superman not believing in hell, I'm on board with that. I, the idea of Batman believing in an afterlife, I could understand he would want to hope that he sees his parents in another life. But given how calculating and logical Batman is, I have a hard time buying that he actually believes in that. And his reaction to being in quote unquote hell in this issue, yeah. I, I didn't know. I didn't totally buy that. 
And I would actually go the, I would flip it. I would believe that Superman would believe in hell and Batman wouldn't. I think the logic side, the science side, the, uh, gosh, I mean, I think sometimes Batman thinks that hell, if hell exists, we're living in it. Right. I think, I think that's where he would probably fall. But knowing Superman's living with the Kents in the Midwest Bible Belt, I would have a hard time believing that faith wasn't a part of his upbringing, even though he's not. I mean, like it's there's a whole another podcast about you know alien life and all that fun stuff. But truly, what were what were the Kents' stance on God and faith? And we talk talk about the death of Superman. Run, he had to get Jonathan from the afterlife. So if you're going to believe in heaven, you have to believe in hell. Yeah. So it's just an interesting, I don't know if I agree with that take from Wade. So, which is okay for us to say everybody. Yeah, it's fine. Different ways of interpreting these characters and look, he's the one who's writing them. So I guess, (laughs) I guess he's quote unquote right, but he's, he's allowed. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I, 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 that was something that I was like, I don't know in that heaven's ladder story and, and in here, and there does seem to be some commonality in terms of how Wade sees Batman's beliefs. And look, this is a Superman podcast, not a Batman one. I have not invested the time yeah. in psychoanalyzing the, the dark Knight. <laughs> but, but I would be curious, you know, for, especially for our hardcore Batman fans, like where do you guys land on this? Because yeah. again, I, I really didn't, you know, what's, here's the thing too. Even if, even if he believes or he wants to believe because he wants to know that he'll see his parents again one day, I still don't believe that he would think he was actually in hell in that, in that issue. I think he would be rational enough to know this is, you know, this is a facade and we have to get to the bottom of this. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. And I'm going to do a little deep dive after this. I'm curious. Yeah, it's an interesting angle for sure. You know, I, the line you mentioned about Green Lantern, hilarious. That that genuinely made me laugh. I think it's Batman yeah. who says, like, I miss the days when we could hit him with a brick, a yellow brick. Yeah. Of course, it makes me think of that all-star Batman and Robin, the boy wonder moment where they paint everything yellow. Regardless of how you feel about that story, that's a great, yeah, it's mo- great. It's a great moment. It's a great scene. It's hilarious. <laughs> Mark, uh, Mark Wade does do some really good things. On his JLA run, he did this too. Um. Batman's he puts great like little one line quips sometimes into Batman's dialogue because di- again Batman's a freaking genius he's a wordsmith too like he's gonna know how to make jokes he's gonna know how to be clever and I just I love when we see that side of him it shouldn't be all the time but and that's a nice thing when he does it rarely you're like oh damn like it's it's good you know that brings up a really good point and ties back to what we were saying before maybe in terms of seeing this lighter side of Batman that he can make a couple of quips that he and Superman are very simpatico. This is a Batman at this point in the quote unquote, not too distant past with Dick Grayson as his Robin. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe, you know, as much as we saw, it's like a silver age vibe, but you know, taking a closer look, I think maybe we can attribute that to the influence of this Robin. Well, and this is also really before, like we know Batman has experienced loss of his parents but he has yet to experience any other loss. And that loss includes Dick Grayson becoming Nightwing. Yeah. So it's still Robin. It's the Robin. So it's it's a very different tone. For sure. 
And we talked about the Supergirl Robin time travel. Robin gets lost in the time stream, and that sets up our first one-off issue, uh, number six. And I also, I know Neza, and certainly where we leave off with Neza on Lazarus Planet at the end of this, leads into that Lazarus Planet event and that Batman versus right. Robin miniseries. Um, I believe you've read that. I've not read it yet. I'll probably get not to fully. it at some point. Okay, gotcha. I mean, I'll probably get to it at some point. I don't know that we'll do dedicated coverage on it, but I'll just say I recognize that this was setting up uh, a story to come and, and all of that. Yeah. But, uh, again, we really looked at it in the context of, of this, of this as the first arc of this series. Yeah. Um, is there anything I want to talk about that Robin, uh, Robin at the circus issue, but was there anything else in that first arc that we didn't hit on yet um, that you wanted to? Oh, the only other thing I think it was, there was a, there was a Batman and Superman combination. Oh my happened. God. I can't believe we, I, I meant to bring it up and then it slipped my mind. Yes, please. And like the first, it's just so sad. But I know people listening will relate with this. Sometimes you see a thing in a comic book, and the first thing you say is, "God, I want an action figure of that." <laughs> and and that that combination of Batman and Superman combined in one in one person, I was like, "Yes, I want that. I want that toy." <laughs> yeah. So the, that was when they're facing off with Green Lantern, and they realize that his willpower is compromised because he's being possessed, and so right. I don't know that I bought this could actually happen, but I'll, I'll go no, along with it. No, it couldn't, but Where I loved it. Batman and Superman exert their willpower and will the ring <laughs> to themselves, and it fuses them into this variation on the composite Superman-Batman, yeah. which even Loeb played with when he got to the final arc of his run, the composite Superman-Batman. That holds no meaning for me, so I don't right. I don't get a ton of mileage out of it, but you know, right on. And I agree with you. I did think about, I think my mind went to Funko Pops. I was like, oh, they should do a pop of this. Oh, <laughs> oh no, you're... Yeah, it's over for you now, Anthony. <laughs> when you go to when you go to, I want a pop of that. It's you're 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 not gonna have any more. I, lo I look behind you. It's getting a little busy back there. It's uh no. I mean, I, I sold <laughs> I sold the vast vast majority of them, and I only kept the ones wow. that really. It's Superman stuff, Power Ranger stuff, and a couple of Supernatural nice. is over my head, and that's kind of about nice. it. But uh, my son really, I did get the composite Superman Batman, and Milo got a huge kick out of that. So if they did this I fusion version, you know. Yeah, I haven't gotten that one yet. My, I, I have to start downsizing some of my pops too, though. Even Bell's, she goes, Dad, if you want to sell some of mine, I was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to talk about selling yet. <laughs> you know, so anyway, we, you know, we get to the end of this first arc, and, and I think it, like I said, I think it works as this great tour through the DCU, and you see the working relationship between Batman and Superman. I guess for me, it just felt a little bit more... You know, maybe I would have preferred something a little bit more character driven as opposed to plot driven, mm. which is what it what it felt like. But it's yeah, okay. the introductory arc and it did what it needed to do. And I think it's it's definitely fun and fast paced and uh, and worked. So, you know, again, I came out of this a little shaky, <laughs> a little shaky, yeah. but knowing where, you know, now getting the larger picture, uh, I'm on board with it. But, yeah, then we spent issue six with Robin in the late 1800s. And yeah. he has moved from, because the, the, you know, where the tomb was, it was off the island of Cordo Maltese. And now he's gone to the mainland right. and he's taken up with the circus and there's this murder mystery and they're blaming the animals and he's got to try to prove their innocence. And well, I think that- I he, loved it. What I think I, I liked the most about this was just how, I mean, Supergirl is so racked with guilt over the fact that she lost Rod, like Robin's lost forever. But it's like oh, yeah. Batman knows 
And that's the thing. And again, this is another instance where Wade clearly knows these characters and these dynamics because and because I'm thinking the same thing. It's like, no, Robin would know how to get word to them. Like he would know to leave it like he carves a message in a stone where he knows yeah. they'll find it. And it's like, of course. Oh, yeah. He totally Marty McFly'd that one. He was like, all right, I'll just chisel in there. Batman's smart. He'll look. And then I didn't he have Superman x-ray, like just x-ray the whole area and look to yeah. find it. I think he did. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, now, just to be said, uh, Travis Moore did the art for this one. And really liked the shift in style for this particular story. Older time had almost like um, early Sunday, Sunday funny comic strip newspaper kind of look at times. And it matched the time frame where the story was in. I loved that. Um, but then it was interesting. He actually did the first issue of the new arc, too, with Strange Visitor. And then Dan came back on board for the last one. Well, did he? Because I saw, I was confused about this because if I'm not mistaken, that the first issue of the next arc, the cover says more, but I swear the inside says Mora. Yeah, I'll look, but. But either way, although, oh, I'm glad, the, <laughs> glad we're talking about this. This is so nitpicky because I don't think it's uh -oh. ultimately taking away from the page count of the story. But yeah. what is with DC these days and these double page credit spreads? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it feels it feels like overkill. Not that, again, we appreciate the creators. It's nice to give them that display, but I don't know. It yeah. feels wasteful. I don't know. What, I mean, what, how do you feel about this? Oh, gosh. I don't think it's nitpicky. I think I'm frustrated that there's still ads that exist. I know that means that makes they have to have them, but it's a reason why you would want to go digital because you don't have to deal with that. Um, but... I would go a happy medium. I would actually rather have like a, a one page spread of that. I think it's important. I think the creators don't get enough credit when it's jammed in somewhere on a panel underneath the story arc. I, I like this, but it is a little, maybe it's going to that old style, like bum, bum, bum. And it's like strange yeah. visitor. And it's like the front, like the opening of an adventure to Superman episode, perhaps or something like that. Yeah, no, I did, I'm okay with it. Again, like one page and, you know, if they utilize it as a little bit of a recap as well, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, I don't need that, especially I'm reading them all in one shot, but you know, at least that's, I, I don't know, but the double page spread just, I'm like, wow. Okay. <laughs> I think, I, I think Marvel was doing this for a while that I kind of liked the inside cover <clears throat> had the credits for a while. So it was the, it was the cover itself. And you opened, and that spread had all the info about the issue, the uh, copyright, and then and then page one was the story, and I kind of liked that. Gotcha. All right, should we uh, take a quick commercial break and then get into Boy Thunder? All right, let's do it, baby. We'll be right back. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals: Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. 
Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. And we're back. So the second arc, the second major arc of World's Finest is this strange visitor storyline. Also seemingly called Reckless Youth, at least in terms of the descriptions in the app as I was reading it. But in any event, this is the Boy Thunder, the Boy Thunder story. Uh, where right. I feel like the series really kicked into high gear and I felt like there was a lot explored here that uh, that I was really able to sink my teeth into. And as we had alluded to earlier, we do get a, I wish I could say surprising because unfortunately, you know, reading after the fact, this had been spoiled for me, but a connection to Kingdom Come. Yeah. And so we'll get to that. I'm curious. I'm curious what's next. You clearly see at the end of this, um, we don't know when it's coming back, but something's going to be happening. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't want to bury the lead and, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who's, who's not current on this, but we find out that this young boy, David, who becomes essentially Superman's sidekick boy thunder in the future becomes Magog from kingdom come. Whose, whose backstory and origin had always been quite cloudy, right? We didn't really know his deal. And now we know where he came from. So I'm very curious what, how this will be followed up on. I'm ex- I'm excited because as you know, that's one of my favorites. So any, any reason to go back into that universe, I'm really happy about for sure. So it's funny. This arc starts with a, a very explicit homage to all-star Superman and that opening page doomed planet, desperate scientists, last hope, yeah. except this time, uh, of course it's Gotham city Gotham in a parallel city. reality. And yeah. young David's parents putting him in this ship to, uh, to to vibrate through realities to escape their yeah. dying planet. I like that um, concept. The whole vibration concept of shifting through is very very clear. Of like Flash being able to do that and, and that that approach of the multiverse. Um, and I did like that Gotham City was the the the, the bright center of that multiverse. It was interesting. Yeah, it was cool. And I I appreciate we I mean, I guess this is part of the homage to to All-Star Superman, but also because this goes on for a couple of pages and yeah. he lets the art really tell the story here, which I, look, I think that's the mark of no pun intended, you know, someone who's very experienced and secure. Right. And knows that the words, you know, would just kind of cloudy thing, like, right? you know, kind of uh, muddy things up a little bit. It's like the art was so evocative and really told the story and captured the uh, the intense situation that you didn't need to to you know fill it up with words. 
I'm trying to think when the last has there has there been an issue that comes to your mind where there's been a silent episode, like a silent issue. Man, I, especially in, in DC on the DC side, I don't remember the the thing that I guess the last thing that comes to my mind didn't Tomasi and Gleason do something like that after Damien died in Batman and Robin that was like an all silent issue as Batman oh, was maybe kind of warning. yeah you might. You might be right. About I think, that. but even that was going back years, years and years. I can't think of a more recent example. So nothing that comes to mind. I love that concept though, of just a picture based, like telling the story. It's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, what's your take on this character? We see, you know, over the course of these five issues, uh, we see, you know, he adopts this, this costumed uh, identity, right? A, a suit that's created by the scientists in Candor because the explanation that's given is that the sun on in his reality was a lot cooler. And so he processes the solar radiation here differently and it gives him these heat powers essentially. Yeah. And so the Kandorians create the suit that helps him control it. And the idea is he's going to be, you know, sort of mentor, right? It's funny though. One of my favorite bits in this was when, when Clark is talking to Bruce and he's like, can you and Alfred and Dick take him in? And he's like, not really, huh. <laughs> not really. Like basically, yeah, this is up to you, buddy. Kind of, yeah. We got a full house also over here. Yeah, we're doing. Uh, what did he say? Congratulations, Clark. You're a father. <laughs> That's what he kind of said. Um, so, have you made the connection as why David is such an interesting approach, or his even his backstory on in a Superman Batman? So, uh, David's parents die very similar to obviously how Clark's parents die. The only difference is Clark didn't see his parents die. Mm -hmm. Bruce did see his parents die. So you have this, this visitor who is living a trauma that is from both sides of the book living in one kid. So that was a connection that I went, Oh, like, I'm assuming that was intentional, but um, it was really powerful. And it was interesting really watching. I mean, I, I didn't say I want to say I like watching him in a traumatic, but you could definitely see how hard this kid, like how this this kid was going through some stuff and then dealing with the fact that his powers are not normal and hard to control. And they're even trying to understand the powers. It adds to the trauma and meeting his parents on our universe. That scene was devastating too. Um, I, I think the reason you and I really liked this arc even more is not just because there was more action, some more growth, but it was hard. It's it stretches you as a reader too to go like, oh, I don't I don't know if I like how I feel during this. No, I I agree with all of that, and it challenges the characters in a different way because this is. This is a young kid with a lot of anger and you see that manifesting in terms of uh, his, his behavior towards the villains that they're apprehending and he's going too far and he's threatening to kill them and uh, you know, burning, burning one of them with his powers. And yeah, you know, it's one of these things where it's more of this philosophical divide that they really need to cross with him and it's, it's tough. And so that again, challenges them in a different way. And it also, you know, I think it created a great space for Supergirl uh, you know, she has a great conversation with him and talks about, again, exactly what you said, this idea of trauma and grief and survivor's guilt and talks yeah. about how, not unlike David, I mean, she saw her world be destroyed and she had grown up there, unlike Kal-El. 
And we also get, I think, a great moment for Supergirl where she gets that dig in to Superman where she's like, why don't you drop him off at an orphanage? Oof. Which, fair, I mean, you know, fair point. Yeah. Um, it's hard to, as you go through and just into issue nine, where you realize why David's so upset. Where you start with, oh, he's going through this trauma because, of course, you go through this trauma because you lost your parents, you lost your world, you're alone. But then to harbor the guilt that you were being a dumb kid and you were messing with the ship and you're the reason they couldn't take the ship that would have taken all of them. You ultimately sentenced your parents to death. That's a lot on a kid, let alone an adult. And that was hard. It's like, oh, and that's a, another another twist that Wade throws in. It's like, yep, it's not the story you want it to be. It's a different f- flavor, but it, this actually, yeah. as we're talking about it, it calls to mind a Batman story. I've referenced this on the show before, but remember when uh, Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Rousseau did uh, Broken City right after Hush? Yeah, yeah. You know where I'm going with this, right? The, the reveal, you know, spoiler alert for the story that the last words Bruce ever said to his parents were, I hate you before they went to the theater. And I, I am grateful that this story never really seemed to adhere to continuity yeah. as I don't, I don't yeah. know of any instance where it's ever been referenced. And it just was, Oh, I never liked it. Cause it was just like, it's too much. It's, yeah, it just felt much. like too much. Um, but you know, kind of similarly here that it's, yeah, it's not, it, it's what he's going through is compounded by, by his guilt yeah. over, over his, his role and his parents not being able to survive with him. Well, and not that it condones the action, but again, he's a kid. Like it's, I think it's not as hard as yelling. I hate you. I think it's the, I was just being a dumb kid playing and messing around. Every kid has gone through that where you don't realize, Oh no. Like I was just being goofy. I didn't realize how important this was to mom and that kind of thing. Now in this case, how important it was to the survival of their family. So that's why it's a big deal. But being able to walk the kid off the ledge and say, hey, listen, it's you didn't do this on purpose. Like, we know you didn't want to kill your parents. It's okay. Yeah. But, and so, it's, but it's still, it's good. And that's the secret that he's harboring that I think Donna Troy actually is is the first to really pick up on like, hey, there's something more going on here. And I liked, yeah. I liked the, you know, that made me more excited for Wade's uh, Teen Titans miniseries, you know, get, seeing yeah. the play that they get here. And even before that, the fact that as Batman and Superman are trying to figure out what to do with this kid, Dick is the one who's yeah. like, all right, like, I got it. Like, we're going to take him to... Uh, to the Titans headquarters and train them and have meet some friends. And there's that, oh man, one of my favorite bits. You know, we haven't really, we haven't really zeroed in on this too much, but yes, it's world's finest. It's Batman and Superman. But again, yeah. Robin is there and the Robin Superman dynamic is great. Yeah. And we recently yes. covered Up in the Sky, the Tom King miniseries. Oh, yeah. and, yep. I listened to it. Yep. And uh, thank you. And, uh, you know, there's that great final issue where the little girl is asking him all these questions and she's like, which Robin is your favorite? And at first, he, you know, he tries to get out of it and she kind of presses him and he's like, well, the first one, like he's my, you know, we're friends. And you see that. And there's that great moment where Superman is taking uh, boy thunder to task for going too far uh, on the, on the ship. And Robin just whispers, knowing that Superman will hear, he's like, like, don't do it. Not in front of his friends. Not in front of his friends. Yes. And I love that it was purposefully, like you could see it was written as a whisper. Yep. Like, I love that. I just, that's also good writing. 
And it's also, again, that's how you would hope these heroes would care for each other. It, and it's not telling Superman in front of everybody. That's an easy writing. This was hard writing where you're like, actually make it like it's real. And that's what I love about it. And I guess kind of building off of that, another thing that I really thought was was very effective here was Wade walked the line with this character because it would have been easy to make him just a total lost Bad. cause. Yes. And there's the one issue where, you know, we haven't mentioned the, the adversaries in, in this arc, the key, and which yeah. it's funny, having just not too long ago read, reread the Grant Morrison JLA yeah. run with the key, I was like, ah, there we yep. go. <laughs> uh, so the but key, this is darker. This one is a lot darker. Yeah, I mean, you know, he uses, uh, uh, you know, one of the, the, the chemical molecule and the molecule. Uh, what is it called? I don't know. It breaks all the molecules down. It kills you. Oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the substance that he douses Gotham City with that makes everyone oh, afraid yeah. of doors and windows. So, like no one can go yes. anywhere. And he teams up with the Joker and they get they grab a hold of Boy Thunder at David. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it was pretty intense. Very well done. But in the midst of this key Joker, you know, battle and all of mm -hmm. that, uh, there are the, I'm forgetting where the miners who are trapped, right? And there's gas, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, Batman's trying to coach David through using his, his heat powers minimally, just enough to right. get the door open, not to, not to cause the yep. gas to ignite. And at first, like David can't do it. And he, and he runs away. Yeah. Oh, he doesn't run. He like, He's gone. Like he bolts. He's gone. He's crying. He's hiding. And then there is a trigger where he realizes that they, no one can get to them except for him. And he and he has to be a hero. And and like and I think Superman finally does like get there in time, only to find that David is already there getting them out, which is so cool. And to Wade's credit, like that's what I thought was so cool about this was that had had David just fled and not come back um, mm -hmm. again, I think that would have fallen into that trap of like, you know, making just making him so easy to write off. Right. You want to give him some yeah. redemption, but at the same time, in terms of what had been set up and, you know, always wanting, right. right like when we read these things and there's a lot that we can kind of call, we're like, all right, we know what's going to happen. This was an instance where I honestly didn't know what the, what the resolution to that was going to be. If it had been that he yeah. didn't go back, it would have tracked enough with what we had seen. So it was one of those things where it, I'm glad that he went back because it, it showed that, you know, there's another side to the yeah. character, but at the same time, like, I'm like, I genuinely don't know. And I like being, <laughs> I like being in that, in mm -hmm. that, in that space. So I really enjoyed well, that. And when you look at the layout, they were very smart about how they did it, where there was very good communication between Wade and Mora that like, don't like show Superman going and getting there but you don't see the reveal that David's there until that one panel. Because I wasn't with you. I was like, oh, he he biffed it. Like, he couldn't do it. But then, like, I feel like a broken record sometimes saying this, but these stories are about redemption. The stories that we love the most are about redemption. And we, and we, and we want them to be redeemed. We want them to find strength. That's the reason we read stuff like this. Not to walk away sad. To walk away hoping that will be our story. Well, so oh, and kind of on the, on that note, so eventually, like I said before, he is taken by Joker and doused Yo. with the with the Joker gas, and eventually Joker starts beating Beaten. him with the crowbar. Yeah, so it's very familiar. It's very tough to stomach, of course. Yeah, it calls to mind Jason Todd and shows 
Joker really has a, a pattern here. But I guess two things. One, it, it was, uh, I think one of the things that was so disconcerting, I mean, in a good way, the story works, but was was David pleading. And I think it's the key mm. who even says, like, I'm not used yeah. to the heroes, you know, pleading for yeah. their lives. But it's like, yeah, this is a kid. Like, like stop. Like, yeah, please stop. Please stop hurting me. Yeah, because they assume that he knows who <clears throat> Batman and Superman are. But he does. And, you know, and that's the other heartbreaking thing. It's like this kid genuinely doesn't know. It's like they trusted him only to a point, right? They yeah. hadn't gotten to the point yet where they were willing to reveal who they actually are. Well, and he's been and what they don't probably realize, too, is that he's been there for two days. Right. Like, it's not like. Not like he's been around hanging with the Titans forever. It's like no, he's he's fresh, fresh off the multiverse. He he doesn't know much. Um, something that struck me around that time frame when Joker is torturing, how unhinged Superman is, and how uh, almost desperate he is trying to find, and he's so pissed off. And there's a line that I wrote down that is so good because it it reminds me of injustice. It reminds me of like Superman is always one choice away from being the Superman we don't want him to be. And the line is grief he can handle. It's anger he has a hard time managing. So it's like it's dealing with the loss he can deal with, but it's when there's what comes next, that's that's the scary part of Superman you got to be careful with. <laughs> And in that in that same scene, the I think he says like it's helplessness, right? There's a, oh, yeah. a line about helplessness, and you know we've been seeing that play out on the current season of Superman and Lois. I don't want to spoil too much, but you know yeah. in a very powerful way and uh, a far more grounded, serious story than I expected them to tell yeah. this season, and it's been amazing, Agreed. amazing to watch unfold. But you know you really feel for like you just feel for the character, this god among men who could do anything, not being able to help it's, in this specific instance. It's uh, exceedingly difficult. And what you're saying about anger, uh, you know, for Superman in particular, and this comes up in that scene, it's like he has no outlet for it, really. Right. Right. Which is, which is, you know, adds, adds to the problem there. So, yeah, I mean, we see Superman with the red eyes, the classic, the, the telltale sign that Superman oh, yeah. is angry. People, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter, if at all, but mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like uh, the online community and I don't know how representative they are generally, but people don't seem to like the red eyes uh, and the heat vision, but especially the red eyes as kind of this signal of, of Superman's anger. But I don't know. I, it doesn't, I don't have a problem with it. There's still people probably pissed off about the end of Man of Steel. That's probably why. Yes. I don't think that will ever totally go away. <laughs> but <laughs> but anytime we see somebody with heat vision, they're like, Oh, stop it. <laughs> but then, then, so the other thing with the Joker is when, when David finally gets out and he's pummeling the Joker and it's like, I don't oh. care if it takes me 20 years, I'll kill you. And then you get that flash of him as Magog from kingdom come. So where did you know, were you surprised when you read this the first time, did you know oh. this was coming or no? No, no. no. And to be honest, in the reread, I forgot. I was like, oh, that's right. Like, and I got excited again. I mean, I not to be this way, but you and I, we read a lot of different stuff. And like the amount of stuff coming in our brain, it's easy to forget like what you've read like, even four months ago. Well, no, you know, not for anything, but I'm reading this. I, I it's great and I am curious to see where it goes. And I well, another question I want to circle back to, but you know, I'm thinking to myself, so yeah, in Kingdom Come, we have Gog, I mean Magog, 
And I, I guess in Kingdom Come they talk he was he was f- formed by Gog, but we don't see well, that. Oh, we're going to learn and as we well now we see that yes. at the end of the last issue. But then of course, and we had covered this on the show, the Thy Kingdom Come story from Justice Society of America that Alex Ross was involved with, there we right. had, you know, Lance Corporal Reed from the JSA from our Earth turned into Magog by by Gog from the third world who had risen. Then of course in The Kingdom uh, from the late '90s, there was uh, Michael, the, the William, the young boy William, who survived the Kansas yes. devastation, who yeah. the quintessence turned into God. So, so our the question is going to be posed, <laughs> and again, listen, Mark did all of this. Like, so I wonder if we're going to find that, like, who who is this Gog, and is he is he creating different versions of Magog as his followers, and how many are there out there? I kind I love it. I'm excited. I want to know. Like I love when, whenever we find holes in our knowledge that we're like, well, what does that mean? I love that tension that it, that it adds. It's true. And then there was yet another version during the the beloved Chuck Austin run on Action Comics. <laughs> but you yeah. know, there was that God character too. In the name, in the name of God. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, that's all to say that as I'm reading this, I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> where does all of this fit in? But yeah, I had a note. I had a note with that saying, we're going to talk about this. <laughs> like, cause it, we, we got to know what's up. Like, where is this coming from? But this um, is, Oh no, go ahead. No, 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 no. It's, it's a tangent. It's about one of my other favorite Mark Wade lines. Mark every now and then does have a, I mean, I've talked to Mark and been around the booth enough. He's got a good sense of humor that gets a little past PG 13. Sometimes I'll just say, did you catch the the Robin comment on Candor? Oh yeah. That, that was like, I, even I was going, oh, dude, like what he said, everything is bigger on earth. And then you just hear Robin, like, <laughs> It's like, stop, stop talking to the Kandorian girls, Robin. It's like, oh my God, Mark. I was like, what are you doing? But again, Robin is also a teenage boy. Yeah. So it just made, it just made me giggle. Like, it was like, I cannot believe he threw this in there, but it also made sense. Yeah. Well, this kid's a little horn dog. No, I, you know, yeah. I think one of the other things <laughs> with, with this David storyline, Boy Thunder, that yeah. really works. And this is building off of what you were said, what you said before that his origin story really lends itself to these connection points with all of the characters, right? Obviously Superman yeah. in terms of coming from this doom planet, Batman watching your parents die, Robin as well, right? Had, right? had gone through that. And then Supergirl, again, same type of thing of, of living, yeah. you know, you know, spending enough years on a planet before it's destroyed that you feel that loss so much more. So, yeah, uh, you know, it really created all of these opportunities with the characters that I think Wade capitalized on. I guess the thing I wanted to ask you is, again, especially knowing your love of Kingdom Come, and you, you and I, I mean, you were perfect to have on for this because we did a whole episode on Kingdom Come. Yeah. What we know, or what we, what we can remember from Gog in Kingdom Come. Yeah. It, does this feel, does this feel in keeping with the Gog that we know? Like now that you have this backstory, does it all track for you in terms of what we, what we saw from him in that, in that other story? Okay. So yeah, if, okay, there's, I'm going to try to not be long-winded. There's two answers to that question. If this is the Magog of Kingdom Come, I am curious about 
clearly David or Magog will know his past with Superman. So if we go back and reread Kingdom Come and the tone of their relationship, how does that change when we look at David as a teenager losing the connection by accident with Superman and Superman saying, I promise I'll come find you. The question is, is Magog pissed? Is like, you never came and found me. Like that's, that's a question we're going to find out. Maybe if it's not the Magog from kingdom come and it's another disciple of Gog that has a different answer. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess my reading of it was that once David and who knows? I mean, like again, I don't know how, how, and when, and where this is going to unfold. Right. But I guess my reading of it, or was just when, because ultimately, like you know, the key accidentally uh, triggers uh, David's ship, and they yeah. share the same vibrational signature, and they they don't know how to turn it off. They can't get it get to it in time. They try to call the Flash and Kid Flash. They don't get there in time. Mm-hmm. So you know, it is a very heartbreaking moment as they all know that yeah. David is being pulled away. And I mean, I assume he ends up on. You know what is it? Earth twenty two is the kingdom come Earth, and you know becomes and becomes Magog, and then of yeah. course has the encounters that he has with that Earth's Superman. So it's not right. bad blood with that Superman per se, but yeah, I mean I'm right. sure that's still you know feeding into into everything, but but also accounts for why the Superman of Kingdom Come right doesn't know who this person right. is. So exactly, it, and it works. I mean, don't forget the way it looks like in the story is we leave that he's getting torn away from Superman and is immediately standing in front of Gog. Mm -hmm. So we don't know then what's going to happen from teenage to adult Magog. That's, and you know, the other thing too, and in fairness to Magog, he does ultimately come around in kingdom come. And so I think seeing out, seeing the backstory and seeing, you know, kind of the misguided ways, but ultimately someone who was, was deeply traumatized and, wanted to do good you know was was trying and obviously was overshooting the mark in a lot of in a lot of respects but not an ir to you know no pun intended with mark Wade, not an irredeemable character and so yeah. i do think that tracks <laughs> when you look at where where magog ends up in kingdom come well and it's not to not to poop on anybody's work but that's why i kind of hate the kingdom i don't i i like kingdom come i like where that's left I don't love the whole William going after, like killing all the versions of Superman. I don't, I don't love that. I think it changes the tone of the character. Yes. I think it's fine. I mean, I'm actually going to be uh, um, rereading the kingdom for one of our red skies episodes because it introduces the concept of hypertime, yeah. which, you know, never really gained traction uh, you know, at DC, but I th- always thought it was a cool idea. Even as a kid, it's like, okay, cool. Like this is a way to reconcile everything and we'll just, you know, we'll just, you know, run with it. So I'm curious to see how I feel, but just based on my memory, I agree with you. And I, I think part of it was that kingdom come, you know, what, what they did not to go too far astray here, but like what they oh, did, yeah, yeah. what they did in justice society with thy kingdom come, that was different because mm-hmm. it was taking the Superman of kingdom come and sending him here, but at a very, plucking him from a very precise moment. And then he has his adventure yes. here and then yep. he goes back and it doesn't touch. It doesn't touch the kingdom come. And that's what I don't like about kingdom God, is yeah. that I feel like we had closure in a good way. And Magog's line, I felt good about where that redemption was. And then 
we kind of taint it a little bit with the next set chapter. So that's just my opinion. No, I, no, I agree with you. And I look, I, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like the consensus on the kingdom is not an overwhelmingly positive one, you know, sort of thing, but right. in any event, it, it, it it's out there. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about it, but uh, okay. yeah, this was a, this was a very effective arc. I mean, I, I guess the only thing, I mean, I guess we got enough of Superman trying to mentor David. Maybe I would have liked a little bit more of that or, how like where was he even staying? Was he at the fortress, like or at the Titans headquarters? I, think, I guess. I think, I think both. I think maybe a little bit here and there. Yeah. Like when he visited one, I I think the amount was fine. I did like the purposeful choice to have Robin help. Like so, it's you had the father figure and the brother figure almost. I think that was healthy. I think that was cool. Is there anything else we haven't talked about with this first year of World's Finest that you wanted to? I know. Um, the little nod to Superman 2 with the red the yes. red chamber taking away powers. I enjoyed that. That was kind of different. And then Superman kind of making the choice at the last minute, like, no, no, that's a bad choice. We're not going to do this. And you think um, about the long-term repercussions of that. Yeah. Again, you know, looking ahead to the, to the Kingdom Come story and Magog's whole role in that, it's like, well, if Superman had just taken away his powers. Right. Um. I'm looking through my notes. Did you see the bat copter? Yes. That made me laugh a little bit too. That's a nice little, he always has a little few. He has a love for the sixties Batman too. So he throws it in every now and then too. Um, no man, I think I'm good. I think, I think I enjoyed it. And, and like you, like you said, first arc, good. Second arc, I would give, I would give great. Yes. I think just to, to sum it all up here, I, I guess that second arc, I felt like that offered something new and different and new yeah. territory to explore. And that's what I felt was was a little lacking in the first one. I think that's kind of if I had to pinpoint like what what kind of I was I was bumping up against, it was that. Yeah. And I think that the first arc was a we needed that setup to make this arc strong. I think if we came out of the gate with this arc, I don't know if I would have liked it as much. Fair. That's fair. Well, I will try to use that to convince Rich Roney to uh, pick up and continue on with the series. But listen, thank you very much for joining me for this. I really enjoyed our conversation, as I always do. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's always good to talk. All right. We'll be right back with the second half of our Mark Wade double feature. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers, and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC Movie Rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, So the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Thank you. Joining me to discuss Mark Wade's JLA run is one of the hosts of the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast, returning guest, Joe Marcello. Welcome back. Hey, thank you so much for having me back. My pleasure. I'm excited to get into this run. We recently revisited this series 
when we did our Electric to One Million event, and we discussed Grant Morrison's epic, iconic run. And that got me thinking about revisiting the Wade run. It had always been on my list to go back to and to talk about on this podcast, but I started thinking about it even more as I came to the end of of rereading the Morrison run. So I assume this is a run that you had read as it was originally coming out. Yes, yes, definitely. And um, I loved getting back into this one uh, for a couple of reasons. One, as you meant, you know, we've had a couple of instances or actually three times now we've had Wade on our, sh- on our show. And um, it, this was great to get back into this because um, I realized that there are things that come up in that were that, you know, kind of the, this arc was kind of built around that still resonate in the comics nowadays. And it was, it, it's, it's, it's just, it was just such a great, great, story that, that I, I just really enjoyed it, especially coming off the Grant Morrison run. Um, it was, it was really fun. I hear you. And yes, you've had Wade on dollar bin bandits a number of times. I hope everyone will check that out. Uh, you had him on recently and I did a live show and people can watch or listen to the replay of that. Uh, as of when people will be hearing this, it'll be about a month since, since that episode, but yeah, I definitely encourage people to check that out. Like yourself, I read this as it was, originally being published. I was reading JLA, you know, monthly at that time. And so of course went right from Morrison into Wade's run. Now, when we talk about Wade's run, so he was on the book from issues 43 through 60. And he also did the, uh, originally tabloid sized treasury sized, uh, one shot heaven's ladder with Brian Hitch, Mm -hmm. who of course would go on to join him as the artist on the main series. One of the things that I think think I tend to forget, and I imagine other folks might as well, is how short his run was. (laughs) You know, Morrison, of course, you know, hit, uh, you know, left with issue 41, right? And then we had one fill-in issue and then Wade came on. But, you know, 43 to 60 is not, I mean, I guess it's all relative. There are runs that are are certainly shorter than that, but, uh, you know, a relatively short run. And when you look at kind of the breakdown of it, it's essentially four four arcs of about four issues or so a piece, right? They're not these, right. you know, these, these epic long storylines or, or anything like that. Uh, and when we talk about kind of how it all shakes out, we have, I think it's fair to say the most famous uh, storyline from this run tower of Babel. So he started exceedingly strong with this four part tower of Babel yeah. storyline. We had the three part queen of fables arc. Then we had the big issue 50 and then there was a four-parter. I don't know that I really ever had a clear uh, name for the entire storyline, but the dual identities where the right. the heroes and their alter egos are, are split off. Split, split off. Uh, then there was the four-part Terror Incognita, which brought back the White Martians. There was a fill-in issue by Chuck Dixon that tied into uh, the Joker's Last Laugh event. And then issue 60 with Santa Claus. And of course, the Heaven's Ladder event. So... Again, we're really just talking a, a quartet of relatively short story arcs, but still an impactful run. Very impactful. And, you know, there you can read each run separately and enjoy them. But if you read them all together, they're all, all still very cohesive. There are, you know, uh, themes and issues that run throughout Um you know, first and foremost, the issues 
and, and Tower of Babel, everything that comes out with Batman, it's still a running theme throughout the series. And even comes up nowadays in you know, it, it just it come, rears its head. You know, can we still trust Batman? We know he has contingencies in place for anyone. So as much as he trusts you, he still doesn't trust you. You know, he will trust you 99% of the time, but it's that 1% you really need to worry about. So, um, and I, when you boil it down, that is the character. You know, he's the guy who tells you like i don't really work on a team but yet he's got the biggest bat family of any you know character in the dc universe so you know he's a walking contradiction it's true i was thinking about this a lot so tower of babel i imagine folks are familiar with this and it was adapted into the justice league doom animated movie which have you seen that one loved it i enjoyed i remember watching it I remember liking it. Uh, I haven't done a full rewatch though since it first came out. I did rewatch a couple of of key clips after I reread Tower yeah. of Babel, and I, and I liked what I saw. That's you know on the list to fully revisit at some point. But you know, it's certainly a story that I think people know uh, in the comic book version. The movie changes the villain to Vandal Savage, but in the comic, it's Rachel Ghoul, and he creates this device that. Uh, essentially interrupts the language centers of the brain so people aren't able to understand the written word and later he cranks it up even further and then they can't understand uh what everyone is saying so Mm -hmm. uh you know it it just it causes worldwide panic and confusion and it's all part of his plan to kind of thin the herd uh to a more to thin the population to a more manageable size and protect the environment so Mm. uh it you know ties into the whole ethos of of rachel ghoul and 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 that side of things but the, the thrust of it is that the leaguers are taken down one by one uh, via these very specific methods. So a fear toxin that makes Aquaman afraid of the water, nanites that make Martian Manhunter skin uh, flammable, combustible, a version of yep. red kryptonite that turns Superman's skin transparent and then he's just bombarded by solar radiation. Uh, we, you know, we, we go on and on and we can talk more specifically about what happens to each one. But of course, the twist that I think we're all familiar with at this point is that the plans were Batman's that were, were stolen and usurped by, by Rachel Ghoul. And so this causes a major wedge, this really uh, a lot of friction and this, this uh, d- division within the team. And ultimately they vote Batman out at the end of this story arc, out of the league. And this distrust uh, you know, among the team and, and uh, kind of these hard feelings continue through that Queen of Fables arc. And it's ultimately in issue 50 where they're all kind of able to to come back together and come to terms. And the turning point is starting with Batman, they reveal their secret identities to each other. And then again, from there, the costumed heroes and their civilian alter egos are split. And that leads us into our next arc. And we, we keep going from there. But yeah, I mean, this quote unquote betrayal, depending on how you feel about it, <laughs> you know, really sets the stage for, I think for, for a big part of this run. And I guess I was thinking about this in terms of our conversation as far as, you know, maybe a, a few different questions that can kind of frame it and, and move us along yep. here. Uh, because again, I don't know how much value there is in going like a beat by beat through these stories. Cause I, I think people, you know, do tend to have a fair amount of familiarity, especially with, with tower of Babel. So I guess just as a starting point, where do you land on Batman's actions? Were they justified that he had these secret plans for how to take down each one of them and, and didn't, t- didn't tell them. Well, 
I think for, and it, this is something that's kind of come up even into the, into the movies where, you know, there's a certain amount of apprehension and quote unquote distrust for Batman against, um, at least in the movie as it pertains to Kryptonians, aliens, Superman. Um, and that same rings true. So, you know, Batman is plans for every contingency. He, in every instance, has something planned to get out of trouble. Um, is it justified? Probably. Because his intention is, let's say, so-and-so, whether it's Flash, Superman, Martian Manor, they are controlled by something, someone. How do we take them down? Completely justified. However, when it doesn't become justified is when no one else is aware of it. And they're surprised and caught off guard like they are in this, that it's one of their own who created these plants to begin with. So that's that's where the issue lies is that, you know, it's like there and Batman and Superman are having this conversation in look through my notes here. I think it's issue 50 um, right after the whole Queen of Fables thing where they're, ha- you know, they're 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 having this conversation about trusting one another and their identities and things like that. And he Batman tells Clark or Superman, he's like, you gave me the kryptonite ring. You did it, you know, but Batman took it one step further, you know, and had all these other plans set in motion or, you know, someplace and kryptonite was synthesized, you know, another version from that. So, you know, that's where the problem lies. Yes. Yeah. With the kryptonite, I think the, the explanation was that they had, he had accelerated its half-life, right? I think that was the sort of the scientific explanation for it. And that changed the color and gave it these other properties. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, and I, of course we know how much affinity Wade has for the silver age. And, you know, the, we were at this point in the comics long past the era of the multicolored kryptonite. So this was a nice way to sort of get in another version of that. I love that. I love the multicolored kryptonites and I still am searching for that prop that was that replica that was created um, years ago because it's still floating around out there. You can find it on eBay or something, but the um, it's a great, great um, Superman uh, thing. Can't find the right word for it, but like, you know, they really should revisit that in some form, you know, the multicolored kryptonites, you have Jonathan Kent. How is he going to react now to all that? So, anyway. No, it's true. I mean, it's, it's so funny. Just as a quick tangent, as much as that's such a relic of the pre-crisis continuity, although, again, it has made returns, you know, in, in, in the modern era. But, uh, you know, watching Smallville for 10 years, they used a wide variety. And so that really conditioned oh me to be, to be open to that and to actually welcome, you know, the, the yeah. different versions of it. Because you get to see, yeah. you know, the all of the different effects that it can have. And it... Certainly for the show, it opened up a lot of different stories. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of value in it for sure. Yeah, just watched. Um, uh, I've been binging uh, Batman Brave and the Bold and just realized how an amazing show that is. The, the I mean, I didn't realize it. I just I mean, when it first came out, I watched one episode. I'm like, yeah, this isn't for me. And then I got into uh, through the 
Dark Knight. It was the one that Alfred writes all the various version, future versions of Batman. It, I was hooked and I rewatched the entire series. I'm like, this is great. It it makes every character, no matter how big or how small, all equally awesome in this in the DC universe. So, you know, um, I totally went off. I lost my train of thought, but it was it was great. Um, and they actually they revisit. They have like Red Kryptonite, and you know, it, they turn Superman into a jerk for 24 hours, and then all of a sudden he snaps out of it. Nice. I've only ever seen one episode, but I really liked it, and it's on my list, and I've heard great things and. Uh, I think my plan is as my son gets a little older, we'll uh, hopefully he'll be interested. But even if he's not, he, I'll watch it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He, my son, he, he actually got me back into it. So it was definitely a great watch. Nice. So this is ultimately the, you know, the question for us and, and certainly in the context of the story, the question for the rest of the league about whether or not Batman was justified. And again, I think it is there are two levels to it, having the plans, but also not telling them about the plans. And Right. I think where I ultimately land, it's it's probably in keeping it from them that was the greater sin. Because look, in terms of, of tactics, of strategy, of just being realistic about this world that they're in and the power that these characters wield, you would need some mechanism to keep them in check. And one thing I did appreciate is Wade's referencing of, of his own story. So I had totally forgotten about this, but there was that Silver Age event that Wade had spearheaded around this time. And it's referenced in the story because Batman talks about the villain Agamemno who had taken over their uh, the leaguer's bodies. Yes. So again, nice uh, nice tie into uh, to one of Wade's other projects. So, you know, there was a very specific instance that Batman was referring to, but even absent that, right, it stands to reason that with that level of power, you would need to have some sort of failsafe. But I do think, yes, the fact that the leaguers were so caught off guard by it is ultimately the bigger problem. Now, devil's advocate, I don't know. I I don't know how I don't know how smoothly it would have gone if Batman had said, "Oh, guys, by the way, I have these plans." I don't know if the leaguers would have just been like, "Okay, great. Like that's really smart. Obviously, you can't tell us what those plans are because that could undermine them." So, you know, we'll just leave it all in your hands. It's kind of hard to right. see the conversation going that way. So, I actually do understand why he wouldn't tell them. Right. But would you rather him tell them and let them know that there are contingencies and fail safes in place should something happen versus having the whole team just ripped apart? I mean, like the best thing, I mean, the best way to to highlight it is the fact that Batman brought in Plastic Man, who's the goofiest character ever. And he even Plastic Man, who basically admits to the fact that Batman legitimized me as a hero amongst all of you. And I want him kicked out because he was basically broken down both literally and figuratively, you know, and, you know, psychologically, he's clearly messed up as a result. He can't trust Batman and he voted him out of the JLA. So, you know, a character like that is turning on Batman you know, I think the whole conversation, what, yeah, as hard as it would have been, would have gone over much better. That's fair. I guess I just wonder, would the league, I mean, I, I'm thinking especially of of Aquaman, of Wonder Woman, would they have ultimately let it lie with, okay, we know you have them, we know you can't tell us what they are, but that's fine. I mean, maybe they would have, 
you know, but uh, I think they would have out of anyone else because they're the the consummate warriors. You know, they're always prepared for a fight, you know, um, and they would understand it probably more so than Superman. Superman is always like they're always there's always a better way to it. You know, we can do this without harming anyone. We can do this without, um, you know, breaking our trust, that type of stuff there. You know, when it comes down to it, they have no problem. Like if it means killing someone to, you know, save the better, you know, the, you know, the, the needs of the few outweigh you know, all that nonsense. From mm-hmm. Star Trek. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, they would probably understand that more so than anyone. I think at least. I want to circle back to how the vote goes, because I think that's especially interesting and ties into what you were just saying. But as far as this bigger question about Batman's actions, it's really funny. And you were saying before about the reverberations, the ramifications of this story and how they're still being felt. And and that was one of the things I was reflecting on, because I feel like this this notion that Batman would make these plans and even that he wouldn't tell them, it feels so in keeping with his character. Yeah. And... At the same time, I say to myself, well, I think in large part because of this story, right? And and the and the and the you know the effect that it's had. It's like I think it it really was very formative in that sense, or at least maybe as far as how I read the character or see the character. Because at this point in time, I was still like very, very, very early in my Batman reading because this was you know early two thousand. So I had just started yeah. reading Batman with No Man's Land and like I just really started getting into the character. So. I think certainly in terms of how how I saw him, I think after this story, like that whole like it's not even a question. It's like, yeah, of course he would do that. But I think it all for me at least probably does go back to to this in particular. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I, I'm I'm the same way. Like I grew up with Batman and all the same incarnations that many other people did. Batman sixty six was my first exposure. Then Super Friends and you know Batman eighty nine. Yada yada. yada. Um, but it wasn't until this or the JLA as a whole that you come to realize like, yeah, Batman is a badass, but Batman's a dick, you know, like when, when you, when it comes down to it, like Batman really is a dick and you know, I'm sorry, I don't mean to curse on your show, but like there's really no other way to put it because, you know, he, he, you know, he will, you know, say the thing that really cuts right through the BS and then he will pour salt in the wound, but he's not wrong necessarily. So, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat things. So yeah, I mean, it's no, it's very true. We, we laid out most of the ways in which the leaguers are incapacitated. I think the only ones we didn't hit were flash. There's this sort of uh, vibrating projectile that attaches itself to his spinal column and like gives him seizures, right? So he's yeah. he's incapacitated in that manner. And Kyle is rendered blind and we're not sure why, but ultimately the revelation that uh, one of the agents had slipped the ring on his finger while he slept. And I forget what the mechanism yeah. was, some sort of device that made him think this, think that he was blind and then the ring made it true. <clears throat> uh, so- he never wore this the the ring while he slept because it was always worried always worried that his nightmares would manifest through the ring. Really cool, something like that has happened as a result of in, in the story as 
in the Green Lantern. Um, I, 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 you know, I had to read the issues a couple of times because I didn't quite understand how that worked. But yeah, it was something like, you know, it just whatever his dreams, you know, whatever. Uh, I bumped into the the Flash part of it a bit because I guess there's only so many things you could do with a guy that runs really fast, you know, to really trip him up. If he's not running on a cosmic treadmill and running just forever, then, okay, I don't know how it's going to incapacitate him. The one I love was the Martian Manhunters um, trap or whatever, uh, because it's they basically turn him into the human torch. Mm hmm. You know, and I, I think I want to say it's something like that that happens to the human torch, you know, except he could turn it on and off. But like it's something like the way the his skin processes the oxygen and that's how he's the human torch. And the same thing happens to him. Um, but he you know, that's his weakness. So and I was just having that conversation with my son about Martian Manhunter and what his weakness is, you know, and just to reread that again. I'm like, this is so funny. Yeah. And then with Wonder Woman, there's similarly a device that put, puts her in this like VR scenario and she thinks she's fighting one of her enemies. And the idea is she'll keep fighting until her heart gives out. Right. Right. And that was what they were. They're like, well, we're you know, they're hoping that you would have a heart attack. I'm like, that's it. <laughs> you want Wonder Woman and her biggest, like her weakness is going to be heart disease? Like, come on. Yeah. But I mean, it's I interesting. Know. I mean, you know, when you think about, again, just how, and of course this, like, that's the thing with all of this that I think just adds to the betrayal is just how specific, right? These were, could only be designed by someone who would study these people closely yeah. when their guards were down, right? Because everything played into, you know, their, whatever their liabilities, whatever their fears are. Uh, so it, it's especially calculating. Now, the one that, Raish had to come up with on his own was Batman himself. And it's, it's quite a jarring image when Bruce goes to visit his parents and those, those graves are dug up. Right. And he goes on yeah. this quest to find them. I mean, that was, you know, so, so again, it's like as much as we're, you know, we have certain feelings towards what Batman did. He's got his own, <laughs> he's got his own stuff he's yeah. dealing with. Yes. In this. And as I recall, that's not the first time a villain has kind of dug up his parents or, you know, attacked Batman via, the his parents bodies uh i want to think i want to say and like i certainly am open to anyone correcting me um i want to say bane has done something similar um something similar happened i want to shoot and it's my favorite storyline in blackest night where um no actually it wasn't blackest night because batman was dead at that point or in history anyway it's happened before but it was you know, for Ra's al Ghul, Ra's al Ghul, uh, for him to do it because he knows, you know, who Batman is, um, you know, he knows the true story. So I think for him to do it uh, is just that much more. It's just that much more harder. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's it's a low blow. I mean, it's it's really egregious. One of the things, like I said, I didn't rewatch that animated movie in in full, but one of the things that did stand out was my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think the movie made far more of a point that Vandal Savage had taken the plans kind of to the next level to make them deadlier, right? To make them yeah. more severe. Yeah. Whereas here, unless I'm totally blanking on it, there wasn't any of that. I mean, it seems like the plans that Batman made; those were the plans that were enacted. I think it, I think I think so. 
Um, the way I, I read it is that, yeah, these were, <clears throat> these were, no, I, so with the exception of maybe the kryptonite part of it, um, you know, Batman has the kryptonite ring, the, the regular green kryptonite ring for Superman, Ra's al Ghul. So Ra's or Ra's al Ghul? I don't, because I keep hearing it differently. I've heard it every which way. I believe one of, one of, there's a certain pronunciation, like, because it's like technically a title. So I think right. there's one. Pre- so I, I don't know. I've, I've honestly, unlike anyway. we've talked about this a lot with like the Kara Kara sort of thing. And, and I have a specific feeling about that. And it's Kara in my mind, even though the well, show told us differently. Those are quite literally two different names, and, Kara and Kara. And I said <laughs> Kara to someone who was named Kara. And she was like, why do you keep calling me that? I'm like, too much Superman. Um, <laughs> but that's all to say, like, I never, I never firmly uh, solidified my stance on the pronunciation of this. So if you go back okay. and listen to any time I've said it, I've probably said it different ways. But for this one, I was going with Raish. Okay, that's fine. Because it, it was always Raish all the years of the animated series. And, you know, when I read it in the comic, I was just like, Raz al Ghul. And then the movie came along and he's like, Raz al Ghul. I'm like, All right, whatever, dude. Liam Neeson did it. Um, so at any rate, uh, I always thought rereading it that, yeah, uh, he kind of took it an extra step, you know, because Batman doesn't necessarily want to kill his his teammates once they incapacitate them to stop them from whatever it is that they're doing bad. Um, I don't think that Batman would necessarily blind Kyle. I don't think Batman would necessarily um, make Aquaman fear water, you know, but he wants to stop him in some way. So how does he do that? Well, you know, he's got to take that thing that makes him stronger, which is water and, you know, how do you get that? How do you take that away from someone whose, you know, power is water and water is everywhere? So how do you do that? You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, I read it as, you know, maybe didn't blatantly say it. Um, but, yeah, maybe Ra's al just kind of kicked it up a notch. You know, he turned it up to 11. So here's the thing. I, I mean, I your, your your point is well taken. I think that's a, that's a fair and solid argument, but I don't know. I, I didn't necessarily have that feeling. And when you, when you look at how each of it plays out with one exception, none of these methods instantly killed them or would kill them. Right. Like Aquaman being no. afraid of the water, it would take time before that would actually do him in. And you know, this, this goes on long enough where it does become yeah. a problem. And you know, Jean has to make him think that he's, you know, in a desert, but actually he's in this water tank. Uh, but all of these things, even wonder Woman with the heart attack, like, you know, you figure it would take quite some time. So I feel like most right. of these are designed so that, you know, it, it would render them inert, you know, temporarily and until whatever mind control or, you know, whatever Batman was anticipating could be dealt with. But the Martian Manhunter one, I feel like that was the most, severe maybe that one yeah maybe that one race kicked up i'm gonna go with that because otherwise i feel like that's like especially i love that harsh. one though I yeah just, i really like martian manhunter as a character and you know like in many times they've said it and he said it in, in the comics he is just as strong as superman if not more so but he holds himself back and the fact that such a thing like fire is his weakness you know, which is just so readily available um, is just that much more intriguing to me. So, you know, the fact that they were able to do that to him, I, I was 
I love that. I just love that they were able to do that to him. And I, you know, I, I love that about Mark Waite. He challenges his, the characters. Like he, I mean, and like I've said it before, if you can't challenge your heroes, then it doesn't matter. Like this is all for nothing because you can't really challenge them in any creative way that hasn't been done before. Then it doesn't matter. And he loves doing that. He loves kicking the hero's ass because it only makes them stronger in the long run. Kind of on that note, this is as good a time as any, just as far as kind of what I took away big picture from this run, especially rereading it and especially rereading it right after going through all of the Morrison material. They, they do both have very different flavors. You know, you look at that Morrison run and it's just, it's epic, literally biblical at times, Superman wrestling an angel and really looks at these characters as these larger than life myths and just these yeah. like big epic moments that really do stick with you even all these years later with Wade I felt like we got far more of an emphasis on the human side the personal side and the interpersonal dynamics and the stories had there's still great moments and everything and still high stakes yeah. but not not to the level of what Morrison had established now for me, this kind of cut both ways a little bit. On the one hand, I did genuinely enjoy these stories, and I appreciate that Wade didn't just come in and try to mimic what Morrison had done, because I don't think that would have served anyone well. At the same time, especially you know, going through both of these runs together, almost back to back, I don't know, maybe this is just because I enjoy the Morrison stuff so much that it felt like a little, like it felt like we were coming down a little bit. Not that they were lesser or worse stories, but it's just, yeah. again, it was just a different dynamic and a different flavor. Not, yeah, again, not like better or worse per se, but I don't know, in terms of the the energy or the excitement that I was feeling with the Morris and stuff, I wasn't really getting here, even though it was very interesting and I, I enjoyed it. There was, I, I agree with what you're saying completely. And I found myself going back and kind of, re-familiarizing myself with the Grant Morrison stuff because that made me love the JLA. Like, you know, not that I didn't before, but I really loved, like, that was one of the comics I was like, damn, I can't wait for that one to come out, you know? And there was so much that happened in his run. You know, introducing new types of villains, um, you know, there was the whole um, the uh, injustice uh, society that was introduced. Um, yeah, you even they had to you know, kind of deal with the whole, you know, blue Superman uh, as a thing. And although not as much as I thought it was going to be in there, but, um, you know, a lot happened in that run. And granted, he was on it longer, but there was a lot that happened. A uh, lot of big pivotal stuff. You had um, General Ealing, who was a good guy, who became not a good guy. <laughs> you know, uh, like you know, things happened, and that was, you know, not the typical type of you know good guy bad guy stuff. So this was more in line with. I say this. I don't want to say the regular type of, of um, you know, uh, superhero villain type of uh, stuff. But you know, like it, it's 
little more traditional. And I think that's probably yes, yes, when, yes. And, 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 and again, we don't say that we, you know, again, we love Wade. We've interviewed Wade. We love, I, we I know, love Wade. I love Wade. Dude, love, love talking to him. It was one of few people that I've talked to where I, and the guy is not in the same room with me, but I'm nervous talking to him, you know, because, and I, I've said this before, before we started talking, when you talk to him, he's very deliberate in every single word that he says. He's not searching for anything to say. He knows what he's going to say. He's been asked all these questions in every form ever. Okay. And he knows what the answers are. I almost crapped my pants the other day when we were talking to him and he was, someone asked him a crap. And I'm not going to do this any justice. And this is just promotion. So go check out the episode when you hear it. Um, he, someone asked him a question like, Oh, why did you do this? And he goes, oh, that was because of a of a conversation I had with Patton Oswald. Like, what? That's your answer? <laughs> that is an awesome answer. <laughs> I was like, how do you like? Okay, you know. So like, he he is very he's so great to talk to, and just an encyclopedia, and such a great writer. So to discuss his work with him. I was just absolutely very nervous about it because I like, and the first time we talked to him, like the guy didn't crack a smile for like the first 20 minutes. <laughs> and he, you know, he told me like, I was like, Oh my God, I'm such a, such a big Superman fan. He goes, yeah, well I'm number one Superman fan. Like just deadpan straight to me. I'm like, okay. Oh, interesting. I have all this stuff behind me and I'm not arguing the fact with him. He goes, look, I'm just letting you know, I'm the number one Superman fan. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I'm like, okay, well, it's me, you, and Anthony Desiato. Okay. So that's it. <laughs> no, that's amazing. No. And so that's the thing, you know, we're, we're, we're massive fans. And, and when I say more traditional, again, I think that's one of Wade's strengths. And I think that's one mm-hmm. of the things when, you know, we're talking about his work and especially his recent return to DC and what he's doing with the world's finest and everything. I think that's a lot of what people enjoy, right. That he's, he's tapping yeah. into. And it's not just that he's telling, you know, stories that, you know, feel dated or like, cause they don't like, they feel fresh, but they, with a lot they, of the, yeah. you know, I think the kind of the classic sensibilities or dynamics or tropes that we enjoy, but with a modern yeah. spin. But when, when you contrast that with Morrison, where, you know, and I don't throw this term around, you know, lightly, but really like genre defying work where again, you look at Morrison's JLA and that really was different than anything that had yeah. come before, like in the superhero space. And certainly with that team in particular. So yeah. Again, just different flavors. Uh, and, and I think maybe I was still kind of like riding that, that Morrison high. And, and again, like this, you were coming down a little bit, but, but in a very, in a meaningful way. And again, what Wade did was, was beyond what Morrison had done in terms of really exploring more of what makes these characters tick, how they work together and really challenging them to your point earlier in yeah. a very different way where it's not an external threat. It's not Mageddon threatening the end of existence. It's yeah. this team not being able to function. So, so again, yeah. I think it's really just, just different, but as far as what resonated with me, I think in the past, it's funny. Cause like before I did these rereads, I probably would have said like, Oh, the Wade run was my favorite, but you know, now kind of going back, it, it has shifted a little bit, but still, you know, plenty enjoyable, you know, each in their own right. Sorry, my dog hurts on um, I, you know, Grant Morrison is very much a, you know, think outside of the box type of guy. He's going to totally take something and just look at it from a totally different light, a uh, different angle. 
change it up. You know, he did that with what? So I'm not going to knock the guy, but when it comes to what he did with Green Lantern, I wasn't happy with it. I didn't like it at all. It was, it was, it was a different take on it. And, you know, as it pertains to me, it wasn't my cup of tea, but I know a lot of people loved it. So fine. Um, coming off of my, you know, love affair with, you know, Jeff John's Green Lantern, it was just a complete 180 and the art was just completely different. Fine. He did a bang up job with JLA because he took all these familiar characters and just totally different stuff with it. But like, to your point, Mark Wade just took the classic look and feel of these characters and just, you know, gave them more traditional challenges, but they were really good challenges. You know, the challenge here is not so much Ra's al Ghul. It was Batman. Yeah. You know, the it, it's, it's basically, it was civil war before it was before civil war came out. You know, the point of civil war was, you know, at least as it pertains to the movie was to break the team down from the inside and that's what happened. No, that's the thing. And I, I hope that people who, you know, maybe are newer fans and have come to Tower of Babel more recently, I do hope that they kind of recognize and appreciate what it did at the time. Because again, this story is over 20 years old now. And again, we've seen yeah. sort of different, you know, echoes of this. And, you know, Civil War is a, you know, a good example of that. But I think this was really an, an, an early instance of this kind of story done really well and in four issues. I mean, it's crazy you know, how much is accomplished yeah. in that amount of time. The other, I guess, big piece of this that I, I wanted to ask, and we touched on this already, but in terms of how the League votes. So Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and Plastic Man vote to oust Batman. And Wally, Kyle, and Martian Manhunter vote to let him stay. And then ultimately it comes down to Clark. And I love, I love the way this played out where we don't we don't hear you know superman doesn't give his vote yeah but they go out and they see that batman has already left and the question is posed to him like does batman know you well enough to know how you're going to vote and he's like yes and that's the moment that we end on in terms yeah. of how each of them voted did it were you surprised by any of the votes and did you find that the votes that their <clears> positions <throat> tracked with how you see the characters um i not you know like I said earlier, the only one that really resonated me with so much was Plastic Man, you know, because like you kind of I would say you kind of know at this point how the others are going to vote. You're familiar with them. The only really newbie here is Plastic Man. And, you know, like he was brought in by Batman. You know, he really has he he, he was a C-list character at best prior to this cool character as hell. I mean, really cool. Uh, you know, like there was once uh, an interaction between him and the elongated man. And, you know, he was like, all you do is stretch. You can't turn into anything, you know, that type of thing. And like, that was a funny interaction between the two. So to have them have plastic man be the one to be so vocal about voting Batman out, uh, and it that was it, really. It wasn't the fact that he just said no. Is that he was very adamant about it. And rightfully so, you know, in my view. So, yeah, it didn't really bother me. I kind of knew how, how Superman would vote, you know, because Superman is, is the nice guy. 
and you know he knows at the end of the day you got to do what's right and in that case voting batman out was right i guess you know because i'm not a superhero no, and I mean, especially with Superman, and again, we we touched on this already, but yeah, the fact that he, we, you know, he entrusted that kryptonite ring to Batman, but that was a specific mechanism to use against him in extreme circumstances, and he knew about it, right? This was uh, right. the trust between them, uh, but with the red kryptonite, with what he did with the rest of them, I mean, this was, you know, outside of that specific scenario. So, you know, Clark's response certainly tracked for me. I think, you know, to Wade's credit, what was really fascinating about that debate was if you had asked me before reading the story, oh, how would these characters vote? I would have assumed probably that Wally and Kyle, like the younger guys, would have would have had more of an emotional response, would have felt more hurt and betrayed and actually would have voted to oust him. And I would have thought that the warriors, like we were talking about before, Aquaman and Wonder Woman, would have recognized, again, the strategic need for something like this. But yeah. when you, so that was kind of my expectation. I think, you know, Wade did a great job of reversing that in a way that felt very organic and tracked because with the two warriors, for them, it really came down to, it seemed that he didn't tell them, right? And that he had been studying them and doing all of these things and that there was this breach of trust and you, and kind of like the other side of this, you have in the battlefield, like on the battlefield, you have to have that trust. You have to know with a hundred percent certainly certainty that the person by your side, the person behind you, like they have your back and right. Batman undermined that with his actions. So that totally tracked. And then, you know, with Wally and Kyle, I think you see, you know, a little bit more deference. Wally in particular is like, you know, who am I to argue with Batman? So you see, you know, that little piece of it. Kyle goes a little too far where he's like, you know, maybe if we had plans like this, we wouldn't have had Coast City, you know, which doesn't totally track because, you know, it was more what happened after with Hal, but, but still the same idea. I mean, maybe if there was a mechanism to stop Superman, stop the cyborg Superman, I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, at this point, Kyle's been around for a while. He's been a little, you know, he's seasoned. Although he tries he's, to abstain. He's like, I'm still the new guy. They're like, no, 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 you're voting. Yeah. No, he's, he's been in it for a while. Like, you know, there've at this point, there have been a few incarnations of the justice league and, you know, he's been around. So, you know, I would say he's building that callus. Um, so for him, you know, he's been around the block a time. He's seen some issues. He's seen some, some events. So yeah, you know, I, I, I think he tracks. Um, I think what, again, here's, I love the flash, but after a while, man, there's only so much you could do with, like I said, with a guy who runs like, you know, like, ah, I don't know. I think his point falls flat for me. You know, in, in the grand scheme of all the characters in this in this arc, um, his falls a little flat. Um, you know, um, it's a bit convoluted. Uh, but again, like you're all right, look, you're dealing with heroes and guys are, you know, unrealistic powers and this guy happens to run super fast and how does he beat people? Well, he runs fast. So, you know, how are you going to incapacitate him? Well, you got to be creative about it. So, okay. Uh, but you know, as a reader, I just found his part of it just to be a little bit lacking. No, fair enough. I'm totally with you though about plastic, man. I think that one really made the biggest impression because it was, even though I was, I was a little bit surprised by the other ones. I was especially surprised by plastic man. And then that turn, 
you know, really, I think made you feel the, the weight of it. So yeah, I mean, this was an amazing kickoff to the run. I think, I mean, I'll get your, your take, but it's, I, I feel like yeah. this was probably the high point of the run. Although again, as I keep saying, I enjoy the other stories, but I feel like, you know, he came out of the gate so strong and I, and I, I don't, I don't know that the other stories quite rose to this level for me. I, this one definitely came out of the gate strong. It, it, it got a bit much long in the tooth as it pertains to the queen of fables for me. Although I will say that I enjoyed seeing Paul Bunyan yeah. involved. It was just cool. Um, and then the whole thing with the identities, uh, I really enjoy that. Uh, you know, just him and Clark revealing their secret identities is just cool. Uh, because it reminds me of when they, they did it in the animated series. And it was just, you know, it was a very simple, fast moment, you know, where Batman's like, all right, look here, this is, you know, they decide, okay, we should share our identities. And Batman's like Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne, Wally West, and, you know, just calls him out. He's like, all right, that was it. But um, yeah, so that that was, I enjoyed that, that issue. For sure. It's interesting with, and I know I'm kind of skipping over Queen of Fables. I, I don't have a ton to say about that one. That was that was probably my least favorite arc. As I've said a million times on the show, I don't love the whole, you know, Superman versus magic. I did appreciate that Superman himself articulated that by saying, I hate magic multiple times. Yes. But, you know, we have the evil queen escaping from the storybook, mistaking Wonder Woman for Snow White and turning Manhattan into this enchanted forest. And they have to rescue Wonder Woman who... Uh, you know, is put under a spell a la Snow White and only Aquaman's yeah. kiss can wake her. This is probably one of those stories that would not be done now today in 2023, but it's an, in, it's an incontinuity elseworld. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. And, you know, we've seen similar stories in other elseworlds where they're taken out of their, you know, regular setting and they're put into medieval times or this, that, and the other, but this one just happened to be within continuity and they explained it somehow. I think ultimately with this story, it's the, it ultimately was a vehicle to show the dissension, you know, within the ranks and to show how now they're turning on each other. And, and Batman, even though he's been ousted, still inserts himself uh, into the proceedings because he's Batman. But, you know, there are, there are a number of great points that are raised. I, I think there's one instance where, you know, Martian Manhunter being, you know, he's being a little, a uh, little, little passive aggressive, but he's like, I think it's, he's talking to Wonder Woman and he's like, you know, if we had a detective, you know, we would be able to figure this out. And she's like, you are the detective. Like you are a detective. <laughs> and, you know, he explains how, you know, Batman is, is so much better equipped yeah. and all that. But, you know, there were some good points. And I think it's Kyle in one of these issues. I, I could be wrong, but I think it's Kyle in one of these issues who makes the point, which is a whole other angle to this, which is at least if Batman were here, we could keep an eye on him, which that's the whole, that's a whole other piece to this. Like if you really want to talk tactics and strategy, even if you don't totally trust him. It's like, well, what's, what's the bigger risk, you know, having him here where at least we can watch him or just having him out concocting who knows what plans now. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that kind of comes up. It totally makes sense. And that, you know, for everything that you know about Batman, but Batman's the type of guy that you can't, you're not going to have him around you all the time. And when he's not around you, you know, he's, he's planning, he's contemplating, he's testing his body. Like there was an issue that I remember reading and I don't, I don't remember exactly when. So again, I please anyone correct me, but in one of the issues, it's basically Batman testing his body and how it can, 
how long his body can um, withstand the strain of space. So he ties himself in to a harness, opens like the airlocks and like the watchtower, and he's basically being sucked into space, you know, and his body is starting to feel the the stresses of, you know, zero, you know, pressure on his body. And then, you know, before I guess his body blacks out or explodes or whatever it is, you know, like the airlocks close and he times himself and he's like, all right, 40 seconds or something like that. Like this is the guy who in his off time is planning. So there, like whether Batman is there with you now, he's not going to be with you all the time. And when he's not with you, you're screwed. (laughs) So don't worry about it. That that's how I read that. And I thought about that too, because I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because there's just few, just less time that he's not with you. But even when he's not with you, he is, he's planning. So take it out of your head. No, that's a good point. I, I have to say in terms of the, the trust issues between Batman and the rest of the league, and then ultimately the, the mutual unmasking again, with the exception of Aquaman and Wonder Woman who don't have secret identities or didn't at that, at that yeah, point. And it was funny. Pass, pass. Yeah. yeah. It was cool. Both of those instances uh, really call to mind identity crisis, which would come mm-hmm. really just a couple of years after this run and will be the yeah. focus of one of our upcoming episodes during our red skies event. And I'm excited to get back into it. I haven't reread it in a, in a good number of years, but one of the That's things in my go-to collection right here. Nice, nice. I mean, certainly in terms of this this issue, this trust issue between Batman and the League, and now you know, in in Identity Crisis, you see sort of the flip of that, where Batman has suffered a, a, a tr- like in his mind, truly an unforgivable betrayal in terms of the the mind wipe. But even beyond that, more big picture, one of the things that I. I guess this kind of went, this cut both ways for me in Identity Crisis. What I loved was how these superhero characters were depicted as real people, as a true community, right? And they socialized mm-hmm. and they knew each other's identities and everything. And and it really made it feel like like a community, like this lived-in world, and really kind of brought it down to earth and showed this this whole human component. And I really, I remember as a teenager reading that, like really being struck by it and liking that. At the same time, and this is where it cuts the other way for me, having read the Wade run on JLA, it was such a big deal for those, just that small group, the six of them, to reveal their identities to each other. And I remember, you know, reading Identity Crisis not long after, and it seemed, at least what I feel like the story was conveying, or at least what my reading of it was, it felt like everyone in the superhero community in the DC universe and their significant others like knew everyone's identities. I feel like that was kind of how it came across. And I just remember thinking like, Oh, I, it was kind of hard to reconcile those two for me. I I mean, again, it's one of my favorite stories and it didn't, you know, ruin it for me, but just like in the context of something like this, it was hard to line those two up. I agree with you. And you just, you worded it very well for, for me because up until that issue, I totally forget, like, I just assumed they all knew who every, each other's a secret identity was. And for that reason, for identity crisis, where they were dealing with more silver age style, I will, I will say. 
And they clear, you know, as it pertained to Sue and Ralph Dibney, like, you know, like, yeah, he's at long gate band, but he's still Ralph Dibney. And, you know, like everyone knew who they were. They, they were like their own little microcosm within the superhero community. And everyone knew them. They kind of got together for like wine and cheese nights, you know, like at each other's homes, like they're all buddy, buddy. And within that group. So everyone knew who everyone was and they all hung out and they fought crime together and whatnot. But then you kind of stepped out of that to the larger circle of the Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, you know, team. And it's a little bit more buttoned up, a little bit more uh, formal. And they didn't really, you know, um, they weren't so open, it seemed. And I forgot that. And I just like, like you said, I just assumed like Diana, you know, Diana Prince, that thing was, that wasn't really a, a real secret identity. It was just, you know, her costume when she just wasn't Wonder Woman in the, in the regular world. So, you know, as readers, we know that they're Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent and, but as amongst themselves, you don't remember that stuff. So it was a really cool issue. And you're like, Oh, Duh, I should have had a V8. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was definitely, it, it was it was a big moment. And I think it was, I think it, do, it was a great payoff to the issues leading up to it and this distrust. And like, well, what could pull them all back together again? And the willingness to share this massive secret. And again, more of a secret at that time in the DC universe, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you know, it definitely resonated. So before we talk about the last couple of arcs in this Wade run, uh, we haven't mentioned the artists yet. So this this was something that I, I guess I had kind of forgotten as well. So there's not, we talked about this, these four arcs that comprise Wade's run. Not a single one is drawn by one artist all the way through. So Howard, yeah. pa- Howard Porter does the first three parts of Tower of Babel, continuing on, of course, he'd been the regular penciler during Morrison's run. And then there's a fill-in for the final part. Then Brian Hitch comes aboard for Queen of Fables and is ostensibly the regular artist for the we- for the rest of Wade's run. But- yep. As we know, you know, Hitch is, you know, very detailed art, <laughs> notoriously late. I have memories of, you know, flashbacks to Ultimates and how long that took to come out. Right. So every one of the remaining arcs where Hitch is officially the regular artist, they all have at least one, uh, if not more, fill-ins. And Queen of Fables in particular, I think there are, there are one or two issues where J.H. Williams III uh, shares penciling duties with him. So, you know, it's fine. I, you know, all of the fill-in artists and later on there's Mike Miller. Mike S. Miller, who fills in on a, on a couple of issues. And I love his stuff. And he did some uh, Adventures of Superman uh, when J.M.D. Mateus was writing the book. I like, so mm-hmm. I was happy with all of the artists, but at the same time, I was like, man, it would have been cool if like, we had one arc that was drawn by one person all the way through. Yeah, I think, you know, we were spoiled with um, Grant Morrison's run because, you know, it, Howard Porter's art was so iconic with that. And it was a nice bridge between the two, you know, between Grant Morrison and, and uh, Mark Wade. And at the time, I don't remember it being so it wasn't it wasn't jarring, you know, because for me, like I, at the time as a reader, um, the um, the art played a big part of it. So the transition from one story arc to the other, the if the art changed I would, it would kind of take you out of it. 
and you didn't have that so much. The, the writing changed, you know, stories change all the time, but if the visuals are drastically different, it takes you out of it. Uh, or at least, you know, you're, you're not in it as much. So, um, it, yeah, I mean, that list, that's how I processed it. And then, you know, like there were some, you know, one-offs here and there and whatnot, but, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, for sure. I mean, again, overall Porter and Hitch, I like both. I mean, very different styles. I enjoy them both. Um, yeah. I mean, I just, I would, you know, and I'm, you know, looking at an ideal scenario. Yeah. You wouldn't have the fill-ins, even though I I like the fill-in artists, but in any event, uh, that's, you know, primarily who Wade is working with, uh, for the, for this run. So we get into this again, quote unquote, dual identity story where, Again, the costumed superheroes and their civilian alter egos are split off. And, oh, you know, ultimately we find out that there are these other dimensional beings who created this like sentient energy called id that's granting wishes. And in issue 50, where Clark and Bruce are having this heart to heart and Clark says, like, we live two separate lives. Like, I wish we didn't have to. That was enough. Uh, so that's sort of the thing. The the wishes don't come true uh, in in the way you would you might you might expect there's always a little bit of a, of a twist to it, but you know, it's an interesting setup and I guess two things. One, I couldn't help, (laughs) could not help, but think about Superman red, Superman blue, uh, which we had gone through, you know, just a few years earlier. And more recently I just reread and we talked about on the podcast and I, I won't rehash that, but my, the main, the main problem I had with Superman Red, Superman Blue during the electric era was there wasn't, I mean, there was differentiation between the characters, but it was pretty superficial. It was like Superman it Blue was. was more cautious and dull and Superman Red was more, uh, more of a hothead sort of thing. And it's fine, but I don't know how much it really said about the characters. Now, in fairness, there you were splitting, you know, it was Superman slash Clark, Superman slash Clark. Here in this story, it's Superman and it's Clark. And that certainly opens up a whole other avenue to explore. But I thought Wade Mm -hmm. did a really good job, not just with Superman and Clark, but with really all of the characters of showing, you know, what happens when you take this singular entity and split them in half. And for Superman in particular, we don't spend a ton of time with Clark. But, you know, he's like afraid of heights on the on the roof of the building and is more of like that timid, mild mannered uh, persona. It would have been cool. I thought it was a little bit of a missed opportunity not to have Lois reference the fact that she's been through a scenario where her husband has been split into. <laughs> but in, yeah. in any event, but on the Superman side, you know, he just becomes this more, uh, you know, cold, calculating eradicator like Kryptonian being and even changes his costume uh, to a look that's very reminiscent of his Krypton man look from the uh, you know right. triangle era back in the day. So, you know, I thought that was cool. I thought that was the real value of that story was really seeing what direction each half goes in. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly as it pertains to Superman, like, you know, you come to realize the Clark part of his personality, how important that is to his humanity. And, there's the Superman part of it, which and there you, you kind of know what all that is, but it's the Clark, the, the Clark Kent of it all that really makes him who he is. So, I mean, Batman's Batman, even when he's not wearing the suit, you know, like well, that. But that was like, the, I thought the Batman stuff was, was fascinating because it's like Bruce Wayne has all of this anger 
right? Like he's like a rich douche. There's that side that that's that's on in full force. <laughs> yeah. But he also has all of this anger, but but doesn't have the training or the strategy or that or really the outlet for it. And then Batman, absent Bruce Wayne and this trauma that Bruce Wayne suffered as a child is this non-entity to the point where when they eventually unmask Batman, there's no face. Yeah. You know, so yeah, that was, no, cool, that was, yeah. So like that was cool. And then like Green Lantern, uh, you know, Kyle without the outlet of the ring, right? Like he's just constantly drawing and he's running himself ragged. It And you want to go back to plastic? You want to talk about the plastic man piece of all this? Oh, no, you, yeah, I don't remember every part of it. So you're, you're no, no, have to. no, that's totally fine. Just that Eel O'Brien, right? Uh, is, you know, kind of attempted and, and reverts oh, to in, his, yes. to his, uh, ne'er-do-well ways when, you know, right. he's, uh, you know, stealing or at least gangster, tempted to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's, yeah, that, that's very much, and you know what? Like, I love Plastic Man for that because he and before this storyline, you know, he, when um, they're when him and Flash are having that interaction, he reveals that, you know, to Flash inadvertently that he was once a, a villain or, you know, he was a gangster. And, you know, to see him leaning into that again, which, by the way, like when we, uh, I don't remember if you ever saw this as a kid, but there was the Flash. Uh, I'm sorry, the Plastic Man, like cartoon show. Okay. And it wasn't very good, but it was kind of cool at the time. But in between, they had like these live action, like interstitials, you know, in into the, you know, out to the, the commercial and back in from the commercial. And that was never really brought up, the fact that he was a, you know, kind of like a, a gangster uh, type of, of character before. So when they really lean into it in the comics, I always found that fascinating because, you know, he was once, be- I know you're getting tired. Um, you know, he was once a, a gangster, but then became a superhero. So, you know, how cool is that? Oh, for sure. And the fact that he's ultimately the one who leads the charge and unites the alter egos and, and you know, the everyone, but especially the, the, the costume version, like they need to be convinced to reunite because there's this whole stretch where like they're looking at this as this great uh, advantage that they can accomplish so much more uh, with their split selves. So, yeah, I, I thought that, that, you know, again, that story was a great device to kind of explore, you know, what makes each of them tick and and how important it, I mean, it's, we see it in various stories, but, it, you know, it still doesn't hurt to have a reminder. And I think this was an effective uh, telling of that kind of story. And then, yeah, absolutely. you know, our, our, our Wade's last major arc is this terror incognita, which I thought was a really, really nice payoff to what Morrison had set up, right? So in Morrison's first arc, you have the White Martians posing as the Hyper Clan, setting themselves up as better heroes for Earth. And of course, they're ultimately, uh, you know, revealed to be these nefarious White Martians. And the their punishment or their, their sentence at the end of that is, you know, Jean brainwashes them and they are living as humans. And it's one of those things Again, I, I remembered where this went, but when I did my reread recently of the Morrison stuff, I'm like, man, that that sounds like a terrible idea. Like, this is <laughs> like, there's no way. Even even putting this story out of my head, it's like, man, there's no way that's going to end well. And so, I thought this was such a great payoff, and it turns out to be an inadvertent byproduct of once again that that id being right. John had made a wish that he wasn't alone, and so the solution was that all of these brainwashed white Martians woke up. And started yeah. making plans, right? They created this tower that was going to 
you know, interfere with how oxygen operates uh, so that, uh, you know, you, you could, you, you know, you couldn't create a flame, their one weakness. And they start abducting latent telepaths throughout the DC universe and ingesting their brain matter. Uh, so there's, you know, there's that whole side to it. Uh, so I don't know. I, it was just like a great, a great payoff to where the series had started. I agree. I always, I like the white Martians because um, they were like a different take on Martian Manhunter uh, that kind of, you know, you kind of discover like they're, they were um, kind of these rival factions um, and, you know, the way they were revealed initially was awesome. So to bring them back, I really enjoyed having them, their inclusion again. Um, and it, you know, it was just, uh, you know, it's just a really cool rehash, not rehash, but, you know, a reintroduction of, of great characters. And one of my favorite moments is during the climax when they're fighting on the moon and then Superman and Wonder Woman and Greenland, they pull the moon into earth's atmosphere so to know that there's oxygen. Like it's great. It's this, uh, and then ultimately it's, it's either burn alive or be banished to the phantom zone and they, they opt for the latter. So uh, yeah, no, that was, that was a cool one. It was a nice kind of full circle moment. You know, it's unfortunate, yeah. you know, again, after that, it's just the Santa Claus issue. So, you know, again, it's unfortunate <laughs> that this, that this run, I, I, ha I mean, I don't know the behind the scenes. I don't know if this came up in, inter in the interview that you did with him, but it's like, I have to imagine that Wade had more of a long-term plan. I, I would imagine. So, uh, you know, it's, it's it, unfortunate. it never, it never came up and it's unfortunate because, when we, you know, when we talk to these amazing writers, they have such a, an amazing long career and we're trying, you know, it's three of us trying to encapsulate the high points of their career. And I didn't even have the foresight to bring it up to him that I was talking to you today about this run, you know, because I was focused on doing that interview about that project and I totally would have done it. And he would have totally discussed it with me too. Um, and when we discussed it in the past, it was more or less. So what was your experience like doing this story? I wish I had the foresight at the time to really jump in and be like, yeah, I want to have that discussion again with the kid I was at the time because I was all about it at the time, you know, and now more so because I'm revisiting it. So yeah, it's unfortunate. Just you know, they yeah. do so many great things with their career, and then they write such great stuff, and you try to wrap it into an hour or so. So no, it's all good. And I, again, I know every time you're on, we remind people of this, and I'll do it again right now to check out the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast on YouTube, on all major podcast platforms, on social media, your Dollar Bin Banter Facebook group. Uh, yeah, I mean, wonderful creation, uh, you know, conversations with these creators, and I hope people will will check it out. So as we kind of wind down here with Wade. Uh, what we haven't mentioned yet is, uh, and, and just so folks know I'm aware, so before this run, this dedicated run that he did, Wade had also written, or co-written that uh, JLA Midsummer's Nightmare uh, three-issue yep. miniseries that kind of set the stage for Morrison's run. I haven't reread that in a long time, but I know that's out there. And then, of course, uh, you know, wrote a good handful of fill-in issues during Morrison's run. But this, of course, was the the, the full, full-on proper run and the last piece of it, though, it didn't come last. It came, I think, I think the 
this came out before, like right before Hitch took over the art duties. I, I'm not positive, but the Heaven's yeah, Ladder, I so. the Heaven's Ladder one shot, uh, which like 70 pages. And again, originally in that treasury size format, I, I owned that at, you know, back in the day. I'll be honest, as much as it's a beautiful, beautiful showcase for the, or that format is a beautiful showcase. Yeah. I never, even today, even today with Black Label and their like magazine size, but I don't like, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, deviations from the standard comic book size format. So, and it was just like, I mean, there are treasury size bags, but it's like, what am I, how am I supposed to store this thing? So I remember as a kid, I was like, eh, and I reread it now on the app. And so I just was like standard size. They fit neatly. I just, I just, I found out on the side of a standard size comic book box. So if you can kind of shimmy, all your issues to one side, one of those fits in there on the side. I I, I didn't know they were bags big enough for those, but. Oh, yes. Whatever. From working at uh, Alternate Realities for many years, there's a bag for just about every size. Uh, yeah, I've come to find that out. Yeah. <laughs> but so Heaven's Ladder, this, this uh, ancient race of alien beings abduct Earth and all of these other worlds and are sort of mining from each of them and have sleeper agents on each of them to... Uh, kind of compile the best version of an afterlife essentially this race is at the end of their life cycle and they're having this sort of existential crisis about what comes next and so just as the title suggests they're literally trying to build kind of a repository for their spirits they're trying to build a heaven build an afterlife so i mean i think one of the things for me that i thought was was kind of cool was that you know this this wasn't an instance of the JLA versus so much like it was mm -hmm. really, they ended up trying to, to help. Right. And the whole idea is the planets will be freed and restored once this process is completed. And you get some interesting conversations between leaguers about what they believe, uh, as far as an afterlife goes. I mean, what, what sort of mileage did you get out of this one shot? Did you enjoy it? Um, yeah, I mean, I was more like the art. Um, that's what kind of stood out for me. Like there were times reading JLA and again, you know, doing the same because I kind of kept reading. So I read, you know, for this, um, this discussion, I read the stuff that kind of led into it. I read the stuff that kind of happens afterwards and I found myself falling into the same kind of, you know, the same stuff I did as a kid when I'm reading it. If, the story didn't really capture me. I found myself not really into it. And, you know, I would kind of just, ah, just thumb through it. You know, like the art is great. Um, and that's this, that's what really kind of, I enjoyed about this period of time for JLA. The, you know, with the exception of maybe a few issues here and there, and I have it in front of me just so I can reference it. Um, I found the artwork to be just, really great consistently. Um, there were, like I said, there were a few issues that were just not bad by any means, just, you know, significantly different than what had come before or after um, kind of like the, the Doug Mank, uh, Manky Mank uh, uh, artwork, which is great. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a bit jarring when it's kind of in these, you know, one-offs mm -hmm. in between these series. So, um, one in question though, that you're discussing though, like I, you know, genuinely love that art. Um, but you know, there's a fair amount of these stories that never really 
resonated me resonated with me in terms of story. Uh, that being one of them. And there's a few others here that I just kind of, I was just like, all right, I just got to get through it, you know? And as a comic book reader, sometimes that's just the way it is. No, I hear you. I mean, I'll say this. And, and again, we, uh, the disclaimer, once again, it's like, you know, fans of Wade's work, I found Heaven's Ladder, honestly, to be pretty dull. I mean, uh, to be blunt, mm. I, I just found it to be yeah. pretty dull. It was not particularly dynamic. I thought, I, like I said, I shared what I, what I thought was interesting. And, you know, those conversations about the afterlife, I mean, I guess, you know, Aquaman talks about how, you know, in Atlantean, you know, theology, it's like the, you all become part of the ocean and you know, like the salt and the yeah. water. And it's like, okay. Uh, Plastic Man, I thought had the best, the best line where he's like, you guys remember we had Zariel on the team, right? Like, <laughs> like, like we know what the answer is. Uh, this is, you know, good to get that perspective. I think at one point someone asks Superman what Batman believes and I think, right. And Superman says that he, he assumes like Batman you know, kind of uh, gravitates towards the idea of of a of an afterlife that where he could be reunited with his parents. Yeah, but I don't think we ever Batman himself never articulates anything, and I disagree with Clark. I I don't think uh, I don't know. I have a hard like the Batman that I have in my mind. I kind of have a hard time. I think he would look at that as like a a lovely idea, but I, I it's hard for me to think like he believes that. No, I don't think Batman believes that. I think that's something he wants in the here and now. But in as it pertains to what happens afterwards, like he doesn't believe that, you know, with, with all the things that he's seen and done over the years, he doesn't believe any of that stuff. He wants that happiness now while it's here, while he's living, uh, because if he has that, then he doesn't have to be Batman. Yeah. So, you know, um, but yeah. But yeah, so it's, uh, you know, if, if anyone hasn't read it, and, and again, for the art uh, alone, I think it's worth checking out. Kind of on that front, I am, uh, we've talked about it on the show before, but I am very excited for Wade and Hitch to reunite for The Last Days of Lex Luthor, uh, sort of the spiritual sequel to Superman Birthright. Uh, so I'm excited for that. And, you know, it was fun to revisit this run, for sure. I mean, it's one that I yeah. always, I enjoyed at the time. I've always remembered it fondly. I definitely have, you know, like a slightly different perspective now that I have a better appreciation for it in its context. Because this is the first time I think that I've ever reread both runs in their entirety so close together. And so that, you know, colors it a little bit. But, uh, you know, for anyone, my God, if anyone hasn't read it, especially Tower of Babel, you know, definitely give it a read. There's there's a lot of really great stuff in here. Um, And, you know, from here we'll go to the Joe Kelly run. Uh, originally I wasn't going to do an episode on it, but I changed my mind and we will, but it won't be for quite some time. So, uh, this is kind of our JLA coverage for the time being, but down the line on the podcast, uh, we will hit the Joe Kelly run. So hopefully, uh, for folks who are looking for more JLA talk, it's coming. Is there anything else you want to say before uh, we sign off and we let you get your son to bed? (laughs) Yeah, I think he fell asleep. Um, no, this was, this was great. This was a fun read, you know, and I keep saying this every time I'm on, but to, you know, when uh, as as a kid, when you're reading these things uh, monthly or as they come out, um, it's a lot different than reading them now as chunks uh, or you know, and as a complete arc. You see things differently. You and you think about them and interpret them differently. So this is it's a fun exercise when you uh, when you ask me to be on and, and discuss this stuff. 
Right. No, I mean, I, I agree. That's the thing. It's like when you, when you read it monthly, it's like, you know, you're looking for something different out of it than when you read it now and you, you can see the whole picture and you're also reading it, right. Not just to be entertained for 20 minutes, right? Like you're reading yeah. it with the purpose of, okay, we're going to talk about this and analyze it. And yeah, it, it changes it for sure. But uh, no, always great to have you on here. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, as we said Thanks before, so I hope everyone will check out the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast. And audience, thank you as always for tuning in. I really appreciate it. We'll be back with our next all new episode in one week. As always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.